It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Alrighty, welcome to the January 31st edition of Rebel Guard Radio. I am your main host, KZ, and I'm on the line with my <clears throat> my other tag team partners, Alex Saint and Vengeance David Fuller. What's up, Ellis? Hey, what's going on? I'm, I'm disappointed, man. I didn't hear Walk uh, as the intro, and then uh, I'm the host of Rebel Guard Radio, as we all know. With, uh, KZ I couldn't and find David it. You couldn't find I couldn't walk. find it. I I've been under the weather, dude. So I haven't been, you know, on the computer. I've been sleeping a lot. But. This, is, this is why I'm going to fire you from Rubber Guard Radio. Oh, that's right. Oh, um, <laughs> did you pick up your back brace today? <laughs> I did, man. Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta carry you right. on another show, man. Well, all right. Enough of the bullshit. We have a. Uh, the whole fucking show, Rob Van Dam on the line. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing excellent, man, and I love the uh, censorship I hear you guys displaying. It's fucking sweet. <laughs> ah, tremendous. <laughs> Welcome to Rubber Guard. Right on, man. Glad to be Hi. here. How you doing tonight, brother? Today's a good night, man. There's no such thing as a bad day in our life. You know what I mean? It's only uh, bad ways of looking at it. It's always a good day to be breathing. Unfortunately, a lot of my brothers are not. So uh, I'm happy, I'm healthy, I feel terrific. Tremendous, tremendous. Um, I was talking to my co-host earlier in the day, and we have decided we will not bring up WWE. <laughs> well, that's up because... to you. I always, I always tell everybody to ask me whatever they want, and of course I always uh, answer because I'm unfiltered as they say but uh but that's fine because uh you know obviously i mean that's not where most of my interest is so maybe this will uh, be different than uh, all the interviews i've been doing lately looking forward to it cool so i'm going to start off um how did you get hooked up with paul Heyman and ecw well um i remember at the time i was wrestling for all japan pro wrestling i was living in georgia and I was doing some uh, indies in between my trips to Japan. And um, Sabu was uh, and had been for a while going to ECW. He was, uh, he was headlining the show. He was actually helping the crowd grow at the time because that was at a stage where they were uh, just starting to do more, more shows, you know, a couple times a month, and the crowds were getting a little bigger and, 200 people, 300 people, and it was growing, and Sabu was a huge part of that. So Paul loved Sabu. His word meant a lot, and he said, you got to bring in RVD. So uh, Paul uh, had called me, I remember after a while, because Sabu kept saying, did Paul call you yet? 
that motherfucker, he was supposed to call you on Tuesday. That happened for the longest time, and I didn't really care because uh, I was uh, I was uh, pretty much into having the deal I had with All Japan, and uh, and I was fine. But anyway, one time Paul calls, and he wants me to go up and uh, do a job for Mikey Whipwreck. I said, uh, okay, but uh, not interested. Thanks anyway. <laughs> and then, uh, because it, at that point, it looked like he was just going to be doing Sabu a favor. Maybe he was just going to take a look at me and uh, and see, you know, what I what I had. Um, but at the time, that was in uh, the end of '95. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of hardcore fans, maybe Paul too, could have caught me on some uh, tape trading. Some old WCW footage from '92, South Atlantic, IWF, but uh, you know, um, I wasn't really in the spotlight at the time, so it looked like he was just gonna bring me in as a meet for Mikey Whipwreck, his uh, his idea of a big push, and ended up by not coming in that time. Then when I came in uh, in January of '96, I wrestled Axel Rotten, and uh, the rest was history. Wow, it was all good. Okay. How, did, how did you get hooked up with the All Japan deal? Um, you know what? I enjoy telling that story. I haven't told this one in a while, but I was super green at the time because this was actually in 92, so I would have been 21 years old. I was wrestling in Florida at the time, and there was another wrestler by the name of Brady Boone, who I looked up to a lot, you know, when I was a fan. I enjoyed watching him on television, and he had a mask for a while, called himself Battle Cat in WWE. And I really looked up to him, and he was just super cool, and he was just, he helped me out. He said, Rob, you ever been to Japan? I said, no, I'd love to go. And he said, I'm going to pass your information on to Lord Blears, who's a promoter for all Japan. Uh, He's living in Hawaii. I'm going to give you his number. I'm going to call him and tell him that you're calling, and that's what he did. And I ended up sending a tape to Lord Blears, who uh, got me booked on my first trip of all Japan in February of 93. And I went over there for a a two-week trip, and I knew that they liked me uh, right away on my first trip there. But, man, it was rough being uh, that far away from home, and especially uh, being, uh, you know, not that experimental when it comes to eating. I have a hard time sometimes being in countries where my choices are uh, octopus testicles or or jellyfish, you know, and... (laughs) Uh, had to took me a while to learn how to make that work. Now, how was the transition from working uh, the American Independence, then going to All Japan Pro Wrestling, where you're working with Phil Lafon and Doug Furness and others? It was uh, definitely a very important learning experience, which helped shape and mold my uh, ring persona that uh, that I use today. Um, when I first went to All Japan, I had really just learned to soften up from beating up all the guys on the indie scene. The, I started schooling with the Sheik in December of 89, and the Sheik trained us to be so stiff. I mean, it was all about grabbing each other, squeezing each other, taking each other down, trying to pin each other, kicking out. It was really way, way different than what they teach you in a lot of these wrestling schools. And I wouldn't have it any other way, by the way. Uh, and the Sheik, you know, was, was really about keeping it rough, you know, and protecting the business. And uh, he really didn't uh, smarten us up to any of the secrets, you know, that a lot of the schools will teach you now. So we learned that being on the road because we were wrestling with, uh, re- uh, with guys that were afraid of us because we were so stiff. 
and, and we were hurting people. Uh, Al Snow was one of those fortunate wrestlers to catch me my first year in the indie scene. And I remember lots of times he would say, oh, lighten up. So, uh, so after compromising a little bit to make uh, some of these guys a little more happy with the match, I lightened up a bit. And then when I went to All Japan, I learned that I was too light. I'd be sending in these tap roundhouse kicks to Kawada's chest. And what I didn't realize at the time was he can't sell that. If he sold that, it'd make him look bad, you know. And so he would respond by just plowing his foot into my face and seriously knocking me on my ass. I took offense to it at first. I thought he was being personal, punking me out. Looking back at it, I see that it was necessary. I learned how to really uh, step my game up in all Japan by bringing the stiffness back to it because uh, that's where I learned, you know, if you don't really bring it and, 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 and you know, make it match up to the standards, uh, then it isn't even worth selling, you know, because these are big, tough guys, you know, that take a lot of abuse. And, uh, and, and likewise, you know, I, I expect them to give it back to me all the same. Fuller, you're up. Uh, Rob, first of all, thank you for responding to my emails about doing the show. Uh, you know, I know you must get thousands of emails like that daily, so I really do appreciate it coming on Rover Dog Radio. Thanks a bunch. Right on, uh, man. I've, I've had a lot of interview uh, requests for a while that I hadn't responded to because uh, I didn't have a whole lot to promote or to talk about because obviously I'm on some downtime taking a break from the road and the business and uh, – doing some uh, inner searching, which is going well. I'm uh, trying to get the word out on RVD-TV, which is one of my big projects now. Great, great. Like I said, I just, uh, it's just phenomenal. You know, uh, when I, I'm in Texas, and uh, so I wasn't able, and I wasn't, uh, I, was, I was getting smart to the internet wrestling scene where ECW was very popular. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of jumping ahead here where Casey and Alex Saint were. Uh, my first thing of Wild Van Dam, and I heard stories. Believe me, I heard all these stories. You got to see RVD, man. You got to see RVD. He's doing this fucking crazy shit. He's a good worker. You know, he's just solid. There's everything about him solid. So when I first got a tape of Barely Legal from a guy in New York, uh, me and my friend sat down and we watched, and we're seeing this stuff, and we're seeing some guys we know, and then you come on the screen and you cut this fucking promo or, you know, you're, you know, ramming Paul Hamill for not booking you on the show and I'm a fucking filler and against Lance Storm and, and a phenomenal match, by the way, and phenomenal performance. And then after that, we started getting, you know, then we got on the internet, we're like, we gotta, we gotta get a fucking taste of this guy, man. We gotta see these other matches. Uh, my, my you know, that's funny, is, that, is, that interview that you bring up, and thanks for taking me down memory lane, but that interview straight from the heart that I did at ECW's first pay-per-view was a lot like uh, the new ECW's first pay-per-view one night stand as far as me getting on the mic and, uh, you know, connecting straight from the heart to the crowd, you know? Well, that and I was going to bring that up, and KZ, I hope you don't mind. One of my major questions coming in tonight, and I had this question in my head since I knew you were going to do the interview, KZ, let me let me just ask this one question about WWE. When you cut that promo at One Night Stand 2005, you cut it. It was the most out. It was one of the best promos I've ever seen because it was from the heart. It was genuine. When you walked backstage, can you paint the scene? <laughs> oh boy. Um, you know, it was uh, nothing but respect. When I went back there, uh, people were uh, surprised because they didn't know that I could talk that well because I don't get that excited trying to sell 
a house show for the weekend and my big, you know, match against Bobby Lashley coming up. I don't really get behind those promos too well, so I say, fuck it, you can keep those. Most people were uh, surprised, you know. Steve Austin said to Tommy Dreamer, damn, why don't he talk like that on our show? And, you know, it was about <laughs> ECW. It was about this is the way we want to be seen. This is the real us, you know what I mean? And uh, it was respect, and it was also, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the boys. I could tell they were looking at me, admiring um, the fact that I had the balls to go out there and say that, you know. Uh, and so it was it was a good thing, you know. No uh, no no harm came from it, uh, as I knew that it wouldn't, you know, because people think that I really uh, speak without thinking, which I don't. I'm aware of everything that comes out of my mouth, and I actually do. Uh, um, go about it in a smart way, you know, I just know um, I wouldn't say anything about anybody that I wouldn't say right to their face, so that's about as genuine as you can get. Much right. respect to you. Much respect to you for cutting that promo, man. Much respect. All right, yep. so on April, April 20th, 1996 at Hostile City Showdown, it was you versus Sabu, who I imagine you probably worked a thousand times up to that point, but that was the first match that really hot started your first big angle in ECW, which was your big respect angle between Sabu and yourself. Now, how did that match compare to the other matches you'd had with Sabu before? And then how did you feel knowing that you were going to be putting this big angle? Uh, that match actually uh, happened on the fly. We had the, uh, we had the match. Um, was this the respect match or the one leading up to it? This was the one leading up to the respect match. It was at the Hostile City Showdown show. Okay, so we wrestled each other, and this uh, this was really like the first uh, really long big match I had in ECW because really I haven't proven myself to the boys yet. You know what I mean? I came in and I wrestled Axel Rotten. I got over. Obviously, my moves are different. I'm acrobatic, uh, whatever. Um, and then when I wrestled Sabu, uh, we pulled everything out, and obviously we had the uh, the chemistry and, and complemented each other's styles in such a way that uh, none of the other boys could even touch it. You know, uh, we're just we're just there for each other. We understand each other because we have a similar vision of what we think a kick-ass match is. So that's why I always prefer wrestling somebody like that. Uh, the end of the match, I won which uh, really got some tension in the back because Sabu didn't get beat by anybody. And uh, as long as he'd been there, uh, you know, the, uh, the Eliminators and Taz and, and all the guys that at the time uh, were pretty, uh, pretty heavy egos at the time, uh, I think they took offense to that, you know, to the fact that uh, this new guy comes in and, and beats Sabu, who was the man to beat. And, uh, and it was something between me and Sabu. I mean, we're brothers. I mean, he's the Sheik's uh, nephew, and he was there, you know, since day one in the ring with me. Uh, and besides that, he was always telling me that I was better than everybody else. You know, as far as my confidence, uh, I got to say, I probably got most of that from Sabu, <laughs> always keeping me in check when he was training me and telling me I was better than everybody else, you know, and that, uh, uh, that I didn't need to worry about, you know, the stuff they needed to worry about because I was going to be a star. So it was always like that. So I beat Sabu, and then uh, it was, you know, the crowd was still new and intimidating to me. 
because I came up there from Georgia where you just show your dimples and clap your hands and get the crowd behind you. And now I'm in front of ECW and I have to prove myself to them, you know, and they're just waiting for me to slip so they can say, you fucked up, you fucked up, you know, and it's, it was intimidating. The crowd was, you know, that's why I was like, okay, I got to have some new moves. Uh, what if, uh, what if I throw a chair up and spin kick it and hit, kick, kick it into the guy's face? Yeah, that'd be a good move. Let's see. What else can I do? And I was trying to come up with uh, ways to up my repertoire and up my ante, up my game, you know, so that I could fit in there. And obviously in the, in the long run, I learned how to, how to master that style with those incredibly high standards. And, uh, even raised the standards myself, so it was awesome. But this night I beat Sabu, you know, and I was like, wow, you know, um, I just beat him. He's the man. I'm going to go over to shake his hand and get his endorsement so he can say, you know, okay, RVD's cool. Look, everybody, I'm, RVD's cool. I went over, uh, and then uh, and, and when I went to shake his hand, he goes, don't shake my hand. I said, what? And, I, and my heart dropped. I'm like, no, don't do this to me. They're going to fucking hate me is what I was thinking. And uh, he sticks his hand out. He goes, don't shake it. And I, and, and I, well, like, I was going to shake it. And I was just like, man, he better know what he's fucking doing. And I turned and walked away. And they went, boo. And honestly, I mean, it kind of it kind of hurt hearing all those boos and stuff because, you know, I, was, uh, I wasn't that secure with what was going on there at that time, you know, being a, uh, not that not as experienced way back then that was you know 12 years ago and uh and then also you know just this new crowd and me coming in trying to prove myself and then for him to do that i was like oh no and i didn't realize till afterwards that that was money you know sabu called it on the fly led to our respect match and a series of other outstanding competitions wow wow that's a that's a great story but um we're going to keep with the timeline here um, as far as your program in ECW with Sabu, um, who was the, I hate using the term writer, who helped, who helped book the majority of that program? Um, you know, a lot of what ECW was, was just us going out there as artists and both br- bringing what we bring to the table. A lot of it really was that it wasn't very storyline oriented, like the WWE is, uh, and it, you know, and maybe more so it was for Raven or Sandman, you know, and Dreamer. They they kind of did the storyline thing more, and, and me and Fonzie and Sabu, for the most part, you know, we just say let's roll the camera and let's just cut up and, and you know be fun, and it, we laughed our asses off. It was it was a great time. I mean, I'm sure you've heard everybody from the original ECW days, talk about how much they loved that part of their career. We'd be doing promos anywhere from 1 in the morning till 5 in the morning after uh, a long, long day of traveling and wrestling. And so, you know, we were drinking at the time. You know, uh, I'd put whatever kind of pill I had in front of me in in my mouth, you know, and and do whatever uh, to get me by. And uh, they'd roll the cameras, and it was just like a big party, you know. Didn't realize until a little bit later how destructive that was, you know. But uh, looking back at it, though, that's what was going on. And, you know, the matches would usually uh, be set up by, by Paul. But even for that, for the most part, uh, early on in the show, he would ask me, who do you want to wrestle tonight? And that's usually how it was. Okay, I, I, I don't want to – excuse me? Go for it, Alex. Go okay, for it, I Alex. Don't wanna... That's my middle name, by the way. Oh, is it? Yes, sir. Not not Alexander. Wanna... Although most of the people on the internet think they're the smart fans uh, and they think they got the info correct, and they, it's actually not Alexander. 
Okay, well, my, my real name is actually Alexander. But uh, not, um, I don't want to deviate too far from the Sabbath storyline, but I do want to keep it in timeline. Um, I don't have the date right here in front of me, but I remember a match that you worked with Mikey Whipwreck, and and Brian Pillman came out and get, gave you uh, gave you a rub per se. Now, when when was that discussed, and uh, why were you uh, given the rub by Brian Pillman? That I, honestly, I didn't really understand that that much, really, what was going on. But um, obviously, Paul was trying to figure out what to do with me. I don't think that I had Fonzie yet, you know, for a mouthpiece. And I think, you know, that he was considering uh, Brian. He was uh, trying to attach me to somebody. Um, I was uh, a heel at the time. And, you know, I was like just me. And he, I, was, I don't even know if Fonzie was managing anybody at the time because I remember he changed from being a ref to a manager and he was managing Taz and then uh, switched over to manage me and Sabu, you know, somewhere in there. But I think that was just uh, Paul, you know, trying to feel things out, trying to figure out, um, you know, something that he could do with me. I have and always have had all the respect in the world for Brian Pillman, so it was an honor, you know, to be associated with him even just for that brief moment. David Fuller, you have a question? <clears throat> Well, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. I'm. I'm. I didn't know a lot of what you did at ECW before Barry Legal, and still to this day, you know, dates and me just don't get along on a lot of things. Uh, but that's why he sleeps alone. <laughs> Sorry, Fuller. Hey man, just ribbon. Hey man, you can get an inflated uh, mate and fill it up with warm air for up there on the East Coast in the cold days. <laughs> He's a hot air dryer. Uh, one of one of my favorite shows, one of my favorite ECW shows, and I remember reading about this on the internet. And I'm kind of probably jumping the gun. One of my favorite ECW shows was WrestlePalooza in 1997, and you know it had the big the big match with Dreamer and Raven. The loser leaves town. Raven's going to WCW. Everybody knows. And then this angle happens after the show, and I've never ever. Aside from one other time when you wrestled John Cena, I have never seen the crowd so just majorly shoot, I'm going to kill you, pissed off. Then that a new you, day? Sabu, and Lawler clean oh. out the ECW locker room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> that was a good time, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was awesome because obviously uh, that was – definitely making the most out of a situation here i was fed up with uh some of uh what ecw was doing with me bischoff offered me a job with wcw and that could have been that i could have just left who knows how i would have been used in wcw maybe i would have been wrestling uh, the disco inferno with a rubber duck on a pole match you know uh <laughs> glad i didn't go so that special. way you know uh, at one time him and uh uh, DDP were talking about making me the uh, um, Mortal Kombat character that they did, you know, and gosh, <laughs> oh, that wow. would have uh, that would have probably uh, put it a, a speed bump in my career path as well. Uh, but then Paul, who knew that he had ties in with the WWE, which now we know he was getting paid by them the whole time, even though he lied to us. But anyway, he had this idea, you know, what if you jump gun, you go over there to WWE. So now I'm on WWE's television as an outsider beating WWE contracted wrestlers 
like Jeff Hardy, Too Cold Scorpio. And then when I got to come back to ECW, I was an outsider there because they believed that I was with WWE because obviously I had to have signed with them or I couldn't be on their television uh, beating their wrestlers, you know. So uh, it really put the spotlight on me. That's where Mr. Monday Night really came about, and that really launched me into like a whole new level of uh, superstardom. It was an awesome move. And I, I apologize that uh, we keep we keep bouncing back and forth, but uh, I, I do want to go over the the rest of '96 and 1997, and starting with uh, two matches that uh, two more matches that you had with Sabu during the summer of '96. Uh, One being the, the respect match at uh, well, no, as you were, it was the match after that at Hardcore Heaven where the rope broke, and then the net, and then at the Doctor was in where uh, you and uh, Sabu fought a stretcher match. I want to know your two memories on those matches. Yeah, I remember both of those. The uh, the Doctor is in was uh, very memorable for me for a few reasons. Uh, one, the outstanding circumstances of the night because it was like one in the morning. The ring had broken a, a few times, and the crowd had waited patiently while they tried to fix it. They had Kimona Wanaleu, uh dancing uh, up on up on top shaking her ass trying to keep the crowd going it was like 101 degrees outside already uh but we had all this going in and uh paul even told the people if they wanted their money back you know instead of waiting for the main event after like what i think was the third time the ring broke uh you know they were welcome to a refund but everybody stayed they wanted to see the match and we went out there, Sabu and I, and we delivered. And even though the rope was broke and sagging, Sabu was doing the triple jump moonsault, jumping from the chair up to the top rope. I couldn't believe every time he did that, that he was even going for it. Um, one of the other reasons that it's really memorable for me is the night before that, I hyperextended my knee at the Lulu Temple in a match against Chris Jericho. And, yeah. uh, and, my, and my leg was, like, really hurt pretty bad. And it was actually that same night that you mentioned uh, that was the first time that I went out to the ring wrestling on pain meds, the very first of many, many, many nights. Okay, then uh, to jump ahead real quick, uh, y'all feuded throughout the entire 1996, and then toward the end you ended up teaming together, and then you had runs against Doug Furnace and Don Crawford, and then... You you uh, began the tables and ladders and chairs craze when you uh, went in your war against the Eliminators. Now those two feuds were very different. I would like to know your opinions on both of those uh, tag teams and both of the different matches and different styles you had with each team. Well, wrestling the Eliminators, you know, was uh, uh, basically uh, a very hardcore team wrestling another very hard hardcore team. I mean, Perry Saturn and, and John Cronus didn't mind doing anything i mean they had all kinds of crazy ideas you know they wanted to suplex the ladder off the top rope onto us and all kinds i mean they just they they wanted to go you know and uh and cronus too you know he was he was very impressive uh and he you know both of those guys didn't mind getting bloody uh you know fighting with the steel the metal of the of the ladders and the chairs and we knew that was a battle because we also uh, fought, you know, to outshine the other team a lot. You know, there was always, there was always uh, that uh, behind the scenes, you know, um, control 
drama that that we had going on with those matches where you know uh where we both wanted to make sure that the other team wasn't you know making us look too bad you know we had that kind of pride with furnace and Crawford, that was straight up uh, out of all japan you know i'd wrestled the, those guys many times in all japan and now that they were here in ecw it was like us introducing the style to them showing them you know this is awesome you're gonna love ecw you know and uh, actually, you know, like feeding them some ideas uh, beforehand of how they could, uh, you know, how they could uh, how they could fit in because a lot of people were intimidated by it and they thought, oh no, I'm not going to do all that barbed wire stuff. No, you don't have to. You know, everybody had like their own niche uh, and drew, you know, like their own uh, their own favoritism from the crowds. You know, from uh, from Sandman to, to Raven to the, the gangsters. You know, there was guys like Lance Storm that were extreme just because they were so talented. You know, and Jerry Lynn, and then there was other guys like. Balls Mahoney, you know that uh, that were extreme in totally different uh, ways, and it, it was all about you know bringing all that together to have uh, and put on the best show in professional wrestling. Um, I do have a question about uh, Furnace and Lafon. Um, your personal feelings on them as a team? Um, I'm disappointed that they didn't get the respect that they they deserved and earned as far as um, working up in New York, um, uh, when they first came in, they, they had some fire burner matches. And when they got hooked up with, uh, with Bulldog and Hart, or Bulldog and Owen, those matches were amazing. But what, um, what are your feelings on, on uh, Furnace and Lafon not getting the proper respect that they have earned and deserved? Well, I mean, uh, they were both uh, very accomplished and, and very good wrestlers. At the time, when they came to the United States to wrestle for WWE, they had already been tagging for over eight years together in all Japan pro wrestling. And, um, you know, Crawford, he's, uh, we used to call him the master. That's what uh, Adul the Butcher would call him, the master, because he, he had a brain for storytelling, and he would just uh, come up with these great ideas, you know. And In fact, I had a singles match with Danny Crawford, who's also um, Phil LaFont, same guy, uh, over there in Japan at the Budokan that was like a, a huge, pivotal moment in my career. It was one of those matches that elevated me from, uh, you know, from being a, an under guy, you know, up to being an over guy, you know. And it was, uh, it was just one particular match. It was the first time they gave me a chance to have a singles match at the Budokan, which was the big show. It used to be in front of 17,000 people, and uh, and it was for the uh, championship, a junior heavyweight championship, which I never wanted the junior title. I went my whole career staying away from that, so I wouldn't be labeled as a junior. But for a short amount of time in all Japan, I was uh, challenging for it. And um, it just, you know, happened to be I was putting on the best matches with those guys anyway. So uh, I really didn't want to win the match, but uh, I had, but I, whoa, what a great learning experience it was for me, though, working with Phil LaFont. When they were in WWE, you know, they were just portrayed as, as foreigners that are heels, and that's boring for anybody, you know. I mean, I mean the, the Rougeau brothers, uh, the, uh, you know, whenever they do something like that, the French-Canadian guys or whatever, I mean, there's really only so much to that it kind of labels you and stereotypes you as a spot that where you're just kind of filling up a spot on the card is uh is the guys you know that people can chant usa usa at you know so um i also uh know that they were told to tone it down you know because they worked their asses off when they first got there because that's how you do it in japan and uh and they were having you know kick-ass uh great matches at every single house show until uh, the agents told them, you know, to, to slow it down, and it wasn't necessary. 
could have had something to do with that too. Yeah, that that was so, my that was the point I was going to make because I've I saw them in house show matches and they were just tearing it down, you know, going twenty five yep. solid, you know, and just you know stuff that I've only seen on tape um, because honestly I have not seen the EC, I was not able to see the ECW product live because I'm I'm in the West Coast, but I still followed it. I still got the tapes and. It was just uh, an amazing, yeah, an amazing feeling to see these guys. Are one of you guys on the phone in Texas and one of you on the West Coast? Two of us are in West Coast. Sweet, where at? I'm outside San Francisco, and Alex is in San Diego. Nice. I'll be in San Francisco at the WonderCon next month. Tremendous. That's cool. I may have to hit that depending on, uh, depending. Is it February? February 23rd and 24th, I believe. Okay, and that's at Moscone Center, if I remember right. Yep, and I'll definitely have a camera, be filming some RVD TV while I'm there. Cool. Oh, cool. Okay, right, here Alex. we go. Okay, and then, um, so you had the long run of matches against the Eliminators and uh, Coffin and Furnace and then the Gangsters even. And then after that, was there any, what were the plans with you because uh, as we've already covered, you were a last minute substitute for Candido after he had injured his arm in that match against Lance Storm. So, uh, was there any plans to involve you in anything? And then, when were you uh, let know that you were going to be working with Storm at the first pay per view? Um, you know, that's that's a question that when I get asked a lot, I usually don't know the answer. If somebody else had plans for me, I don't know. I mean, I've never really been one that to sit in on uh, booking meetings. You know, those are usually for the for the guys on top to bury everybody underneath them that they're trying to hold their heads underwater. You know, um, in ECW <laughs> because I cared a lot, I would talk with Paul and discuss things. And because uh, Sabu, you know, was my partner for a lot of that, I would I would know a lot what was going on when Sabu would be talking to Paul as well. You know, but. Uh, you just, you adjust, you know, um, I don't know, we moved forward, you know, Sabu and I were tagging, we were tag team champions, and we had all the gold, uh, and then he also had his thing with Taz, you know, that was kind of like a solo thing, you know, and, um, it was that night, of course, which I'm sure you're going to get around to, when I wrestled Bam Bam Bigelow for the television title, and at the time, uh, Sabu and I were very tight. We were still partners because the whole storyline going into that was Fonzie set the match up so I could soften Bam Bam up. Sabu had a, a championship match with him like the following weekend, but I beat Bam Bam and I won the television title from him that night. And what I didn't realize, when you talk about those pivotal moments, which we've almost covered all of them up till this point, that was the pivotal moment of my career up till that point. I had no idea what had just happened. It was the next show after that Buffalo moment in history when I was at Queens, New York, and I was wrestling Mikey Whipwreck again. And uh, I just had, you know, some ideas because I was always trying to outdo myself in ECW because that's what the whole spirit was about, you know. So I'd be excited just trying to come up with moves that topped moves that I'd done before. And I remember – uh, before the show at Queens, after I just won the television title, because you know I didn't, you know it was a match, big deal. But I told Paul, I said, man, I got this thing I want to do with Mikey. I wanna, I wanna crotch him on this guardrail, but I want to jump from the other guardrail and I want to jump all the way across, you know, the walkway here and do a spin kick and kick him into the crowd. And I was just looking for Paul, you know, to say, wow, you can do that, or give me some kind of encouragement. And he looks at me and he goes, he goes, it's not going to matter what you do tonight. 
I said, what? He goes, it's not going to matter what you do tonight. He said, you can do no wrong. Tonight, those people are going to love you. Everything you do is just going to be huge to them. And I really didn't know. You know. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And he was right. I went through those curtains, and that was like the first time I'd ever felt all those fans behind me um, you know, appreciating me for, for being their champion. It, it was, it was really special. I mean, it was, it really put me up higher on a level, you know, that of course I never came back down from. I just kept moving forward after that and held that and defended that television title for 23 months after I won it. Um, you know, that dive that I did out to the, uh, to the crowd during that match, uh, two times people remember that, you know, people remember that it was a uh, historical I remember it, and, you know, thank God for DVDs. And, uh, boy, I sure felt all of the uh, energy from the crowd after that every time I came out there. Was there any heat between you and Sabu? Because Sabu was one of the guys that they had really put the company on it, and he carried it for a while. But then after that match in particular with you and Bam Bam Bigelow, like you just said, you caught a lot of steam really fast for being one of the top heels, one of the top baby faces. And was there any heat between you and Sabu? Because after that, Sabu wasn't really uh, as much featured as you were to that point. You know, Sabu and I are like family, and uh, he has my best interest at heart, you know. So uh, he, he's, always, uh, he's always looking out for me, and he would only be happy in a situation, you know, where, where, where I'm getting some attention. Uh, he even, uh, one time when we were in all Japan, uh, we wrestled each other, and this was in 97, and uh, the office uh, gave the finish to him that he was up, and I didn't even know. He just felt like it was the wrong thing because now I was uh, now I was a star, you know, and, and I was getting you know the really good reaction from the crowd, and and, uh, and and you know things were different, and he he just didn't feel like it was right, you know, that he was going over. So he actually uh, didn't. He actually swerved me, and. And I didn't know, but uh, he told me that I was going over, you know, and we actually, uh, and I actually thought that came down from the office. I didn't find out till later that he and I had gone against the office's uh, direction. Oh, wow. That's uh, an interesting story. I have a, uh, I have a question and, and a statement. Sure. Uh, my statement is, is I broke into wrestling in 1998. And when I broke in, Rob, I broke down here in Texas. And I broke in uh, around the same time that Red Dog, Rodney Bonneau, Rodney Mack, and Jazz had just broken in. And then they, uh, Jazz had went in ECW. And so I had been watching you. And then, you know, every weekend, every week, Jazz would come back. And, oh, hanging out, hanging out at RVD, man. It's fucking cool, man. But <laughs> yeah, Red Dog and Jazz are some hardworking folks. You know, I got, got a lot of respect for them. I'd like to see them. Uh, someday get a good payoff for all their hard work they are they're just they're two wonderful people and you know we became really close but so uh you know we would we would start watching a lot more ecw because they were on there and we knew them and it's different when you know somebody on there and so when i was breaking into the business and i wanted to learn i want to learn how to work i'm watching some old stuff but when i want to pop a crowd and when I want to give them that moment that makes my match different from everybody else's, I was watching nothing but RBD matches. And I watched that match with Bam Bam Bigelow, and I said, I don't care how i got to do it. If I die doing it, I've got to do that fucking thing he did out on the floor. <laughs> I was just – it just amazed me. And, you know, no one – 
no one ever gets enough appreciation, especially a guy like you. They never get enough appreciation. But as a, as a, just a wrestling fan who was just excited, when you get bored with the normal entertainment shit, and you just want to be wild, you made it so much fun to be a wrestling fan after it had been taken away for so long with all the gimmicks. You made it so much fun to be a wrestling fan again, and uh, you should be commended for that. I don't think you get appreciated enough. So you were a big part of a a little guy like me breaking into the business. And then my my question is, is I'm fast-forwarding again, jumping the gun, but one of my favorite matches is Heat Wave, 98, you and Sabu, Shinzeki, Hayabusa. Man, tell tell us the story behind that match because it was phenomenal. That was uh, that was an awesome match, you know, for for us too in Dayton, Ohio, on a pay per view, and uh, that was the first time I had wrestled either one of those uh, Japanese wrestlers, and um, you know, of course, ECW had the reputation, so they knew that it was going to be a crazy match, and uh, we just had like all kinds of ideas, didn't know what kind of order any of that was going to go down, but. Sabu and I had been tagging long enough to where we had our double team moves, you know, and we were able to pull them out and on the draw. And, um, you know, they brought a lot to the table, too. It was, a, it was an awesome uh, classic match. One of those matches, I say thank God for DVD because uh, that, uh, that's definitely, definitely one to be proud of. Definitely. Okay. Are we gonna, can we wrap this up pretty soon, guys? Actually, you want to wrap it up now? We can wrap it up now. Yeah, unless you guys, you guys don't have any other questions. That's cool. Oh, uh, we have plenty. Oh, okay. But, um, <laughs> now, the question is, how much time do you have, Rob? Um, um, how about how about we do like about another uh, another uh, about eight minutes or so? Okay, cool. That would work. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Well, we're gonna just skip everything you've done, and and we're just gonna talk to you, Rob. What, what is what was your favorite ECW match to perform in? Um, well, my uh, matches with Jerry Lynn because uh, there was just a lot to that. You know, the, I got a lot out of that personally. My motivation was to uh, entertain the crowd. You know, but I entertained the crowd by entertaining myself. You know, and that's that's really what it's all about. Jerry and I both brought something out of each other that nobody else brought out of us, you know, a whole new level of competition. And I saw that in him, you know, right off the bat, the first time I wrestled him. And I just really enjoyed the uh, physical uh, competitiveness of our matches. You know, it's an exhibition, but we really challenged each other and challenged uh, ourselves at the same time. The uh, crowning moment, of course, was winning the world title from John Cena in the, the new ECW, if you want to call it that. And uh, that was no. totally different. That was bec- it was a great match, but it was a great crowd. The crowd was one of a kind, incredible, 100% for everything I stood for, 100% against everything that Cena stood for. Uh, that could never be replaced. That moment could never ever be uh, replaced with any other moment in history. So as far as that goes, uh, that was the shit. But for for fun, for um, what I get out of a match, you know, and, and for. Uh, showcasing and if I wanted to show somebody just one match out of my whole career to show them look this is this is what I do I'd want them to see RVD versus Jerry Lynn all right well um what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up but I would love to have you back on the show Rob 
Okay, awesome. It was That's, uh, uh, definitely, uh, definitely a pleasure. Um, before we let you go, I'm going to give you the office. I would like for you to ex- explain to my, my listeners out there what RVD TV is. Yes, and I appreciate that. RVD TV is an online weekly episode program that's at robvandam.com. It is for members. Um, you'll, there's, you can go and look at the preview page and see what the, uh, some of the previews of the shows. You'll get, a, you'll get an idea of what we're doing right away. This is, uh, this is me. This is my real life. I don't know if uh, if anybody like reads my interviews or hears my interviews or if they read my blogs, they'll see that I have a lot more to say than whatever or cool like the WWE would script for me for that two-dimensional character you could see on, on television. Now, with RVD TV, uh, this is the real me. This is inviting you into my house, into my, you know, into my backyard, uh, here with my family, um, hanging out with my friends. Uh, in my gym, working out, and it's uh, it's all really good stuff. I live in Los Angeles. I have a lot of uh, friends that also have their own fan bases, so I have a lot of cameos from uh, other celebs on RVD TV. It's only been on for four weeks right now, and every Friday a new episode comes out. Once the episode comes out, it goes in the archives, so you haven't missed the last few episodes. They're still in there. You can see... Uh, uh, you can see five episodes, uh, six episodes comes out tomorrow. Tomorrow's episode is going to be language censorship. This is a reoccurring episode I call Friends in High Places, which is inspired by real-life conversations I have with friends of mine or with family all the time. Um, it's like sometimes it's intellectual, sometimes it's just funny, but a lot of times I catch myself talking with people about things like, you know, what, what do you think about the death penalty? You know, how are your feelings on that? Or, you know, what about, uh, you know, how do you feel about the Bible? You know, I mean, this is like brave shit to talk about, you know, for a celebrity to uh, state their honest, true feelings on something. They really take a chance on alienating a lot of other fans, you know. I don't want to do that, and I don't want everyone to agree with me, but I just want to inspire people to think. So with Friends in High Places, we pick a subject uh, and we talk about it. The uh, subject uh, that we did on the first one, uh, it was myself and Chris Masters with Justin McCauley, who's a, a UFC mixed martial artist and team punishment. We're talking about gun control. Um, the program that comes out tomorrow is Language Censorship with myself, uh, one of my Hollywood agents, and uh, Taboo from Black Eyed Peas, who's a good friend of mine. And i got to say, this is one of my favorite episodes so far because I legitimately have problems with censorship. I don't get it. I don't understand. We invented these words to, to describe things that we talk about, and we invent two sets of words, one that's okay and then one that's not okay. Why do we give that power to that word? I can never understand it. If you, know, if you say, hey, you know, you're a great fucking guy, why am I supposed to be offended by that? Obviously, you didn't mean to offend, but just because the, the F word was used, I'm supposed to be brainwashed to be offended? You know, it's uh, it's like just a source for negative energy. And actually, I'm talking it out with uh, with some of my friends in high places. And Taboo actually brought up a good point or two. And this is something that uh, will continue. It's every Friday, so uh, there's like a new uh, my workouts, actual real-time workouts. Uh, you can work out with me or see what I'm doing. Those will be on there like once a month, uh, friends in high places episode once a month. Um, we're talking about going for it. You know, you were mentioning jumping off the top rope out into that crowd in Buffalo and just, you know, the balls it takes to go for it. How many people go to a comedy show 
and they say, I could get up there on stage, you know, sometime on amateur night, maybe I'll go up there, come up with some jokes. I did that a while ago. I did that like last month, I got it on tape, and then uh, a couple weeks ago, I saw a good friend of mine, Jay Moore, from, uh, you know, he's a comedian from West Comic Standing and Ghost Whisperer, big A-level dude. He brought me up on stage, and I did a 10-minute set of stand-up, and I got uh, myself, I got him, I got his beautiful wife, Nikki Cox, all filmed for a future episode of RVD TV. So there's a lot of variety on there. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I hope everyone will check it out at robvandam.com. And I also have a myspace.com slash five-star comics. Tremendous. And I Tremendous. did I did catch a, I did catch a preview of that R V D T V and it is really, really fucking cool. If you're a fan of R V D or just a fan of just some really cool entertaining T V and thoughts and stuff and discussion, I'd urge you to get it. It's really cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I've got like uh I've got a lot of famous friends too. I, I'm already looking forward to uh, filming uh my friend Jerry Manthe, who's from uh, Surreal Life, Playboy and uh Survivor. And uh, we're going to film something with my friend that's uh, from uh, Stargate and Star Trek. Fans aren't going to believe it. They're going to be like, these are the guys that RVD hangs out with? <laughs> but I, <just> know. <laughs> I know a lot of people. I got Sin Dog from Cypress Hill and the Reyes Brothers. We're talking about nothing other than marijuana prohibition and how fucked up that is. So we're really putting our balls out there, you know, <laughs> dropping our pants, saying this is the real us. Take a look at it. One of the coolest comments I got on the on the message board was, Holy shit, Chris Masters just got really cool. That's because we get to show the real us. Yeah, that was awesome. Oh, boy. That's what it's all about. <laughs> all right. Right well, on, Rob. guys. Appreciate you helping me get the word out on RVD TV. Appreciate the interview, and definitely we'll do it again, man. Just hit me up. Thanks for your time, Thanks, brother. Rob. It was definitely my pleasure. Good luck with the show, guys. Will. Thanks, brother. We'll talk Watch to you Brock soon. Le- Rock- Watch Brock Lesnar. He's right. I have to agree with Rob on that one. Okay. All righty. Caller from the 682. Whom am I speaking with? It's Chris Wolf. Oh. Hey. hey. What's up, Wolfie? Jesus Christ, man. You already cut me off from RVD, so I'm I'm, I'm totally – my markout moment is gone. Hey, man. I watched some (laughs) of your shit today. No shit. um, Yeah. I got a box from Fuller today, and I – I opened it up and I was watching some of uh, some of your stuff. Pretty wacky. So, man. Pretty wacky, he says. Well, I Ask mean, Alex. What, 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 what did you think? I mean, I, you know, did you did you like what you saw? Was it entertaining? Was it was it something? That well, yeah. Smoked weed with of course, I was at? entertained. Well, I, you know, I was laughing at your skinny ass. Uh, it's our <laughs> life's work, man. It's our fucking life's work, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ! When we die, that's all we have. <laughs> Shit, much, man. That's all we have. That's all we have, man. I mean, Wolf's got Wolf's got a kid on the way. I mean, I don't, but I mean, Wolf's got a kid on the way, so. Well, well, you know, Dave, you have to get laid to have a kid to come. Hey, man, God I don't have it. a problem. I don't have a problem getting. Ask Wolf. I don't have a problem with a with, with a woman. I, shut up. I don't have a problem doing that. Just ask Wolf about to keep him over the house. Ask Wolf about the phone calls he gets from me every other day. Hey man, this guy's a, he's a he's a he's a man whore. I don't know what to you know. He he he's really my brother in law. He's not blood related, Jesus Christ. Oh man. <laughs> okay. Well Awesome. Alex awesome you're show, Alex, awesome. you're gonna you're gonna run the show, dude. Um I'm, I'm gonna I have to go across the street and vote. It is Proposition four twenty. 
Okay, well, what's how is Michael Coughlin coming on? Well, apparently that's for us, for him to know and us to find out, Alex, but we can run this shit. <laughs> All right, we got Chris Wolf on the line, Alex Saint. Real quick, uh, we got UFC 81 coming up this Saturday night, and I know everyone, everyone is looking forward to Brock Lesnar and Frank Mir. Uh, Alex, let me get your thoughts, and Wolf, you too. Uh, your Brock Lesnar coming into Saturday's fight. It's your second MMA fight, but it's your first real one because it's UFC, it's the big lights, it's pay-per-view. You're going against Frank Mir. Are you looking for the quick, the quick, quick, quick win to put all the all the naysayers to shame? What do you do, Alex? You go first. Well, I saw Brock Lesnar's first fight in Los Angeles when he fought. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name off the top of my head, but I knew he uh, he competed in the Olympics in judo. So the guy, I mean, he wasn't a well well known name, but. Uh, Maybe he wasn't one of the top tier guys, but he was definitely a challenge for Brock Lesnar because you got to understand this was, that was Brock Lesnar's first ever mixed martial arts fight, exactly. and uh, he had trained for someone else that entire time. He had trained for Hongman Toy, and then he ended up getting a replacement. And then uh, Brock really looked really really impressive in that he uh, passed the guy's guard and uh, showed really effective ground and pound. Um, Brock Lesnar, um, we're gonna go into this a lot with Michael Hoffman in the second hour, so I don't want to go too too much in detail, but uh, sure. I just. I definitely think that uh, Frank Mir has the skill to beat Brock Lesnar, but Brock Lesnar is a huge undercard because we don't exactly know what Brock Lesnar breaks to the table. We know what he brought to the table. He has amazing wrestling ability, but Brock Lesnar's also been training with uh, many different camps over the past two years. And so the Brock Lesnar that we get this Saturday night is not going to be a Brock Lesnar that anyone's seen. So it's, it's really a, a toss-up, but, I mean, I'd have to give it to Lesnar just based on the fact that Frank Mir has been, really been really unimpressive lately in UFC. Chris Wolf. Uh, yeah, Saint hit it right on the head with the. Uh, I mean, I mean, maybe two, three years ago, Frank Mir. I mean, still Frank Mir is a freak. I mean, he's he's his jujitsu was fucking awesome. Before before this before this motorcycle accident, I give it to Frank Mir no problem. But 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 Lesnar's such a freak, man. I mean, you you look at this guy, and even still, I mean, it's it's obviously he's off the steroids or juice or whatever the fuck you want to call it, because he's, I mean, he's still pretty, he's still he's jacked now, but he's not as shredded as he used to be. But and but like 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 Saint said, I mean, you have you really don't the you really don't know what you're going to see with Lesnar, but he's such a freak, man. I mean, you know, he's going to look for the shoot early on and try to ground and pound or go, you know. Go for the submission with 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 Mir. I mean, going in. I mean, I I won't be surprised either way who wins. I wouldn't. You know, I'm not going to put it past Mir because, like I said, his jujitsu is really good. But I mean, but Lesnar's such a freak, man. He's. I mean, I'm I'm really looking forward to the fight. One more quick question, and I know you're going to get into this in the second hour, Mike Coughlin. And this is really for Chris Wolf. I know Alex, you're going to take the second hour in a minute. You're going to cut me off, uh, Wolf. <laughs> uh, you're, you're Dana White. Uh, the heavyweight division is floundering. Randy Couture did what he needed to do. You got the Tim Sylvie fight this Saturday. Are you looking to watch this Brock Lesnar fight? And maybe if it goes the way it goes with all this money, promotion, PR, marketing, do you hang your hat on Brock Lesnar in the heavyweight division as your shining knight if he goes in I, and destroys Frank Mir? I think I think Dana's already banking on I hope I he I think right now he's praying to God that Brock Lesnar destroys Frank Mir Frank Mir on Saturday night. Uh and uh I mean right now he's got he's got Sylvia versus Big Nog in the in, for the for the interim title and he's playing I I, I couldn't I, I mean I, if I'm Dana White I don't know who I want to win that fight cuz I'm 
there's no, you know, everybody in the MMA community is just absolutely bored to tears by Tim Sylvia. Uh, I think he, he definitely wants Brock Lesnar to go in there and destroy Frank Mir and, uh, and he want you know, he wants to build, I, I definitely think he wants to build the, the heavyweight division around Brock Lesnar. Hey, Alex, real yeah. quick, you want to hear a Necro Butcher story? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I always love Necro Butcher stories. All right, man. Me and Wolf, Wolf and I, I should say, we go down to Mineral Wells. And there's a little fucking hick town called Mineral Wells, about an hour and a half from Fort Worth. They have this little fucking show. And uh, so we pick up Necro and a guy named J.D. Diego. So we pick them motherfuckers up. They come up here and stay with my folks and, and Wolf and I. We pick these oh, motherfuckers oh, no. up. All the way I, know, I, know all the, the, I know where the story's going. All the way back, motherfucker Necro says, we got to stop and get beer, motherfucker. we got to stop and get beer, motherfucker. So anyway, so we stop off, and they get beer. Uh, Necro buys, what, a 24-pack or two 24-packs? Okay, so anyway, he buys two 24-packs. One's for everybody else. The other one's just for him. So <laughs> motherfucker comes back up to our house. He's done gone through nearly all of his, all of his beer. So he staggered around. He's like, where's the goddamn bathroom? I'm like, right around the corner, man. All right. Motherfucker, he shuts the door, and he's like, uh, uh, you hear this grunting noise. Uh, uh. Like, you don't hear nothing hitting the water. So I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> hey, so he, he opens the window. He goes, hey, guys, I'm going to piss in the cat's fucking litter box. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, don't you dare, motherfucker. And I go to get up, and I hear the piss hitting the litter. I said, you've got to be shitting me. He pissed in my cat's litter box. <laughs> and he's laughing his ass. He's like, ha, 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 ha. Oh, let's can't go piss now. Ha, ha, ha. stumbles out of the bedroom, sits down on the couch. Fucking, we, I forget what we were doing, Wolf. I think we were watching some really bad wrestling, and we fell asleep, and and then there was another time we we all went down to his house, uh, Wolf Eye, and another guy by the name of Balls Ryder, and we all went down there. And, and Necro, as soon as we got there, his wife and kids were gone, his ex-wife now, his wife and kids were gone at the time. He's like, we gotta go to Walmart. And we said, why the fuck for? We gotta get a pie. I shit you not, he's telling us this. We're like, what the fuck? So he drives us out to Walmart at two o'clock in the fucking morning in Colleen, Texas. House smells like piss and vinegar. So go to fucking Walmart. Motherfuckers tiptoeing around like a little girl. Tiptoeing around. He's looking at all the pies. He's like, he grabs an apple pie. We're getting this one. So we're like, okay, can we go now? We're fucking tired. It's 2 a.m. Well, we'll go back and play BPW, Berkshire Pro Wrestling, on 64. We were playing that. So then he runs and goes, no, we need one more thing. We need fucking milk. So we went to Walmart at 2 o'clock in the morning in Colleen, Texas, with the necro butcher for a fucking jug of milk and an apple pie. Yeah, mind you, I had to pay for it all too. And then the next day, Alex, the next day at eight o'clock in the morning, I started work for RF Video in the pro wrestling shop here in Great Mine, Texas, and they ran their store to Great Mine Mills Mall. So my first day of work, and I'm fucking up at two o'clock in the morning in Queen, Texas, hanging out with the necro butcher. <laughs> So what, became of the, what became of the apple pie and the jug of milk? I don't know, man. I mean, he would get these urges. He was just, he, he's an odd duck. I love the death. He's an odd duck. But he would just, once, once something was in his head, 
He was doing it. He could talk you into doing anything. Ask Wolf. He could talk you into doing anything in the world. <laughs> and then he would convince you it's a good reason. Hey, man, why don't you uh, why don't you uh, stick it down your testicles? What the fuck <laughs> for? Oh, man, then he convinced you it's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, I have another story. Uh, while we're on the subject of Feinstein, uh, ECW oh, comes to Dallas. ECW comes to Dallas in in 2000 at the Bronco Bowl. And uh, Jazz had called Wolf and I up the night before. She goes, y'all want tickets? And we said, sure, we weren't going to go. She said, want tickets? I said, okay, sure. So she leaves them at the door. So I had to work day shift at RF that day. So I'm working. It never got any fucking business. It got business twice, the day of ECW and the day of a fully loaded in Dallas. So anyway, there's a few people coming out, marking out. So all of a sudden, I'm getting ready to end my shift. I worked a match the night before an indie show with Wolf. We worked a match, and Wolf put a staple gun in my head and stapled my head, and I had a big fucking gash in my forehead. So Feinstein comes up, and he looks at me. He goes, hey, man, I'm Rob Feinstein. I said, oh, I'm David Fuller. Nice to meet you. And uh, he said, I like that gig, Mark. <laughs> he said, are you a worker? He said, you a worker? And I said, yeah. He said, well, that's pretty cool, man. And he hung around the shop a little bit. And he got to the show that night, and, and uh, you know, he, he you know he saw me afterwards. He's like, "Hey, Dave, what's going on, man?" And he's like, "You know, got time to get all close to me." And I'm like, "Yeah, you know, no, I'm kidding." But uh, <laughs> you can pass for twelve, uh, dude. <laughs> hey, man, back then I had long hair. I you couldn't uh, ask Wolf. There wasn't a fucking speck of facial hair on me. <laughs> Still isn't, you prick. Fuck you, motherfucker. <laughs> That's glue on. Yeah. But hey, man. now you're fully, your time's over with. I appreciate you coming on. And, you know, I'm going to tell the listeners the truth. This is a shoot, brother. David Fuller was the one that booked RVD for, for tonight's show, and i got to put you over. Thank you for getting Rob on the show. Well, not, not a problem, KZ. I love this show. I love Rubber Guard Radio. And as I told you this week, Rob was exceptionally nice and getting back to me in the emails. And I think if you didn't listen to Rubber Guard Radio before, listen to this now and listen to every show thereafter because, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to line up more big guests. You know, this is going to be the radio show to listen to for wrestling, MMA, everything else. This is the show. So don't let anybody fool you. This is the show. RBD was tonight. I'm working on some other stuff coming up for Rubber Guard. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Uh, Wolf. I know you feel the same. I know you love this show. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, it's been a pleasure being on uh, this week, last week. Uh, anytime you guys want me to come on, break down some uh, some wrestling, MMA, whatever, I'm uh, I'm here at your disposal. I, I, I have an opinion. I'm not afraid to use it, damn it. Tremendous, tremendous. Real quick, well, real quick. Thanks for calling in, brother. Things just David Fuller t-shirt. Did you get yours? Does it fit? It does fit. <laughs> and I... I love the skull in the in the state of Texas outline, dude. That is badass. Well, I appreciate that. That is badass. That. And, and 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 you're going to try to make IHW ten years later banquet, correct? I will do my best to fly out for that one. Okay. All right. And of course, right. of course, you mother, you put me on the spot on on the radio on the air, motherfucker. You're a dick. <laughs> but hey, man, David, I will I will talk to you soon, Mister Wolf. I appreciate you calling in again, brother. Uh, absolutely. 
uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Cool, cool. Enjoy Saturday All right, night, Alex. Y'all, UFC. That's right, UFC. Speaking of, I have Coughlin uh, waiting on the line, so I'm going to hang up on Mr. Wolf. And Alex, I need you to uh, get rid of uh, Mr. Fuller, and we'll get Coughlin on here. Okay. All right. Mr. Coughlin. Mike. Yes, it's me. I'm here. Mr. Coughlin, welcome to Rubber Guard. How you doing, brother? I'm doing all right. How are you guys doing? Oh, I'm really fired up, man. We just had a great interview with Rob Van Dam, and oh boy, we're ready to go. Excellent. Um, I I have my my co-host on the other line, Alex Saint, also known as Alex Goff. Of course. Say hi, What's Alex. going on, Mr. Coughlin? Hey, Alex. How you doing? I'm yeah, doing all right. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's get right to business. Uh, what about this Yama bullshit, Mike? What do, What do you know about it? Uh, I know that Bob Meyerowitz is going to probably uh, lose a lot of money. I think that the only hook that they this promotion has is that this is the original UFC promoter. I, other than that, I don't know what financial resources they have. I don't know what television they have. As far as I'm concerned, this is just another promotion that will burn through a lot of capital really quick and in about a year or two realize that they're not making any money and that people don't want to watch MMA, they want to watch UFC. And I suspect that they're going to learn this lesson the hard way. So what you're telling me, Mr. Yeah. Coughlin, is that a million people won't buy a pay-per-view to see this new and innovating fighting service Yama people will fight on and what Yama actually stands for. Well, if, if, if they think people are... Yeah. I don't know, uh, yet another mixed martial arts group is what I think somebody wants termed it as. Uh, I don't know if anybody's going to pay money to see a surface, seeing as how whatever the commercial they run will probably show the surface in full view. And after that, I don't know what it is. Although I have a suspicion that it's something similar to what Frank Shamrock was pushing many years ago, which is kind of like if you took like, like a cereal bowl, that's kind of what they fight in. It's kind of like a rounded cage almost, so you don't have the advantage of pinning a guy against a cage, but it keeps a continuous flow of action. Oh, wow. Did you no. see that uh, new – did you see the cage in Matt Hughes' new gym? They couldn't fight in something like that? Well, I think that Matt Hughes – well, I, I, I did see the cage that Hughes had. It was kind of a – I think he, that was just kind of an all-purpose cage. He had a, a space that he had to fit in, and he purposely put it in a few corners here and there so that if guys wanted to train a different angle, you'd get inside of the octagon, they could do so. But I think he was mostly just having the cage in there just – so they could have a cage because, and, and it is important, and guys have to learn to train it. You can see what's happening to some of the guys from Pride who come over to the UFC. You're not used to the angles that the cage presents. You're not used to the feel that they can uh, give against the back of your neck and your and your lower body and your lower body if you're getting taken down. It is an adjustment. So I think that you're going to see more of these guys using the cage. And it's, you know, if you think about it, how it relates to uh, Meyerowitz's Yama promotion. Most people are going to either train for a cage or for a ring. If you're developing some new surface that is totally unique and different, people are going to, if people want to fight in this promotion, they're going to have to learn how to train with this thing, which means they're going to have to build their own thing. And if you're opening up a mixed martial arts gym, are you going to build a ring, a cage, or mystery surface that Bob Meyerowitz is pushing? (laughs) Okay, so I listened to your five-star radio show today. And then you didn't seem too excited about the fights that are uh, scheduled to air on the show. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Mr. Coughlin? I'm sorry, could you guys uh, say that one more time? I didn't hear you. Okay, I listened to your radio show today, and then you said you weren't too excited about the fights that are scheduled to air on the pay-per-view. Um, 
Can you elaborate on uh, why you think some of the matches were selected? Because why Mark Horton Horn is going to be on the live show and not uh, the Tyson Griffin fight is beyond me. So do you have any idea why the fights that were chosen were chosen? Well, I mean, obviously your two main events make total sense. Nogueira and Sylvia and Mir and Lesnar have to be on. I think that those could both be very boring. Um, Nogueira is obviously one of the most exciting heavyweights the sport's ever seen, but Tim Sylvia is just an incredibly dull fighter. I mean, this isn't taken away from his talent. He's very talented. He's very good at being Tim Sylvia, but his fights are not always exciting to watch. Uh, Frank Mir, if he gasses out, his fights can be very boring. If you saw his fight against Dan Christensen, that was hardly setting the world on fire. And Lesnar is a power wrestler. Wrestlers, by their nature, tend to have more boring fights. You get a wrestler who's inexperienced, maybe a little tentative as the fight wears on, particularly with someone like Lesnar, who does have that athletic background, which will, when you get to that third round, I think Brock Lesnar's going to be thinking, it's time to win more than win spectacular, and he'll just kind of write out the decision to the clock. And meanwhile, in the undercard fights, I mean, Mark Hart and Jeremy Horn, anything could be good, and maybe these guys will go out there and they'll have some sort of uh, grappling contest a la Sakuraba and Carlos Newton from Pride 3. My suspicion is that it won't be. Both are very methodical fighters, to be generous. And um, Ricardo Almeida was scheduled to be taking on Alan Belcher. Belcher has since uh, had to drop out with the flu, so they, I'm thinking they may drop um, Almeida's fight off the main card and slot in the Tyson Griffin bout, which to me would just make the show. I mean, I can tell anybody listening right now, if you see the name Tyson Griffin on a UFC show, you are almost assured that you're going to see one of the best fights you've ever seen in your life. The man is just a phenom when it comes to having great fights. And he's an incredible talent as well. He's got all the talent in the world to be a real true contender to 155 pounds. But as far as pound for pound, most exciting fighters out there, Tyson Griffin matches up there with anyone. Mm. Would that be a five-star lock? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I won't say that Patrick Griffin versus Gleason Tebow is a five-star lock for, for a, an awesome fight, but it's uh, it's it approaches that level. This is not quite. Uh, you know, if you were to have Tyson Griffin and Roger Huerta, that would be a five-star lock for awesome fights. Uh, Gleason Tebow, uh, he's a very good jiu-jitsu practitioner. He, uh, I've, you know, I've seen him fight a few times since he lost to the great Nick Diaz, of course. But he gave Nick a run for his money. His guard is very active. He's throwing some decent kimuras from the bottom, and I think that he could be a challenge for Tyson Griffin, but at the same time, Griffin has that incredible pedigree. I mean, trained under Cesar Gracie and uh, Jake Shields with Gilbert Melendez and the BS brothers for many years. And then he's since moved to his extreme couture, and anytime you got Randy Couture in your camp, you're guaranteed you have somebody kind of knows what he's doing there. So I think Tyson Griffin is a little too much for Gleason T-Bow, but uh, Gleason's a good fighter, but he's somebody that Tyson Griffin should run over. And because of that, sometimes when guys are – just a little bit better than the other one, and it's not an even fight. The fight can be a little more boring because it can be it can verge on one-sidedness. Now, me and you both watched the live uh, Brock Lesnar debut in Los Angeles, and then uh, Lesnar, he's had a lot of time to train after that. And then Frank Mir from All Access Special seems like he's been training real hard. Now, what are the odds that we'll see a repeat and Lesnar will just mow through Frank Mir? And then how much of the All Access do you think was uh, – Taking a little bit of liberties, how hard do you think Frank Mir is really training for this fight? I'm not sure of how hard Frank Mir is training for this fight. I never know with him. But I will say that when I watched the all-access, I was very impressed by Frank Mir. And I always am when I hear him speak. Frank Mir is one of the most articulate, intelligent fighters in the sport. I think that his color commentary work with the WEC is as good as you're going to find. He's very good at explaining everything to your casual fan. I'd love to see him doing more color work on a UFC pay-per-view or any kind of USC telecast. 
Um, what really impressed me, and if I was Brock Lesnar, I'd be a little nervous, is that Frank specifically brought in world-class wrestlers. I can't remember the gentleman's name. He's representing the United States in the 2000 Olympics. Uh, he brought him in to train not so that he could get his wrestling better, because Frank has readily admitted that he's not going to stop Brock's takedown, but he wanted to see what it would be like to be in there with someone who has a pure wrestling background so that Frank could dissect what a wrestler's mentality would be, what is a wrestler's instinct going to tell him to do, and I was really impressed that Frank was doing that. I mean, that's the kind of intelligence that Frank shows. And I think for the first three minutes of this fight, it's going to be really cool. I'm going to really look forward to watching it. I think that uh, everybody who watches this fight should watch very carefully because it may look like nothing's going on, but there's going to be a lot of stuff, particularly Frank. Frank Muir, uh, watch his eyes. Frank doesn't panic in fights. He's very calm, very relaxed. But at the same time, the man just doesn't train very hard, and I suspect that he'll gas after the first round. In fact, I've never really seen Frank Muir go past one round in any kind of shape. I mean, when he fought Roberto Traven, he tapped him out quick. Uh, Pete Williams got tapped out quick. Tank Abbott got tapped out quick. Uh, Wes Sims, I mean, Frank Muir gassed horribly against Wes Sims in their second fight. He tapped out Tim Sylvia in under two minutes. Uh, Dan Christensen, that was just an ugly fight once Frank was tired as hell. So um, Frank, he's obviously he's a veteran. He's been around for a while. He should know how to train hard. I think that he's got the right kind of people in – I mean – Look, he's from Las Vegas. There's a few fighters out in Las Vegas area that can teach you how to push yourself. But I don't think that Frank Muir is going to train hard because I just don't think that's how Frank Muir is right now. And I think it actually makes for a better fight, to be honest. If Frank Muir is in really, 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 really top-notch shape, I think this fight would be a really – it would be too dangerous for Lesnar. Lesnar has a better chance because Muir is not in tip-top shape, and I think that ultimately will uh, help the fans' enjoyment. I have to agree with you on that, Mike. Um, we're going to step away from USC for a minute. Um, I'm going to be at the Frank Shamrock Kung Lee fight in March. Um, do you think that they're going to sell out the Shark Tank? 18,000? I, I would almost, I'll put a five-star lock that says that they sell out that place. And this will be one of the biggest gates that has not been uh, sponsored by the UFC in the history of North American mixed martial arts. Those two guys, I've, I've been there live. I watched Frank Shamrock versus Phil Baroni live last June, the, I want to say, 22nd, I believe it was. Um, that Frank is a real deal in that town. Kung Lee's been a real deal for years. Those two going against each other. I mean, I think that they had an arena that's held 25,000 people, even 30,000 people. If they scaled the tickets at the right price, they could probably sell that many tickets. These guys are, the, they are true icons in that area. Um, I can recall sitting in the airport the day after the show, Watching the watching the news, and then they were showing highlights of Frank Shamrock. I mean, like he was just another sports figure in town. And you know, I've never seen that before with mixed martial arts. I mean, the closest thing you ever saw was on ESPN a few times, and that was isolated. This just looks like ordinary coverage for everybody. So I believe that that fight is a guaranteed five-star lock sellout. There's, I have no doubt that that show will be an in, almost an instant sellout because those two guys against one another, total money. Mm-hmm. Okay, and yeah, uh, since we want to talk about figures and buy rates, um, I'm real curious because since UFC has been working with WWE and TNA, in fact, if you go to WWE.com, I know earlier today they had a big spread of Brock Lesnar on the website, which surprised me. Now, what do you see? How do you think this is the the wrestling fan, uh, the wrestling audience is going to react to this fight? And how many uh, potential buys do you see this pay-per-view getting? I would think that this fight does at least 600,000 buys. Um, my, my, how I look at UFC pay-per-view buys has dramatically changed, particularly since they had the, the Rashad Evans versus 
Michael Bisping fight back in November, UFC 78 from New York, New Jersey, did almost did like over 400,000 buys. And that is two guys who are not mega stars. This is Brock freaking Lesnar making his debut. Love him or hate him if you're an MMA fan. The guy is generating true passion amongst MMA fans. I think there's a real curiosity amongst your, your fight fans to watch him perform to see if this pro wrestler really is the real deal. And your pro wrestling fans who've probably been around, I mean, if you're only a pro wrestling fan, you've heard about this MMA, you've heard about this health fighting all this time, you're sitting there, you know, you're not quite into it, but, you know, at the same time, it's so popular, and all the friends that you used to hang out with on Sunday nights to watch the pay-per-views, now they're getting together on Saturday nights to watch pay-per-views, and you're probably wondering, what is all the hub about? I mean, what is the publicity going on with this? What is this all the fighting thing? If there's ever a UFC show that a casual pro wrestling fan is going to buy, it's this one. And I think that Brock Lesnar is probably good for two to three, maybe 400,000 buys all on his own. This combined with people who are curious about MMA in general, this is their springboard. I mean, this is like back in the day, I think that Ken Shamrock provided a similar outlet for pro wrestling fans. Uh, you know, I'm gonna, I want to try this UFC or this pride thing. You know, there's that Ken Shamrock. I remember it from WWE TV. Lesnar's going to be the same thing. And I've seen the hype that they've done on TNA. I mean, just watching Kurt Angle talk about this. UFC has done a masterful job of building this show up, and I think that uh, 600,000 buys is almost a baseline for this. And if it did 700,000, I would not be shocked. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's going to do over seven, but that's <clears throat> because that's figuring the the pro wrestling fan curiosity type of angle there. But um, I'm looking down the card, up and down it. For non-hardcore fans, it looks like it's a two. It's a two-fight show. Um, I think that the horn fight's going to be fun, um, as well as you know Tyson Griffin. He brings it. Um, do you see any any of the uh, matches being you know a sleeper match? Um, if I had to pick one sleeper, I off the top of my head, I would say that the Marvin Eastman fight versus Terry Martin could be a sleeper. You got two guys who are both just kind of. Pseudo journeyman middleweights. Eastman fought at 205 and 85. Marvin Eastman had gone on a decent little run at 185 until he ran into a big right hand from Chris Lieben. Um, they're both sluggers. They both kind of go out there and just bring it. They're kind of ugly brawlers. Uh, Terry Martin's actually a fascinating character. He's from right here in the Chicago area. He um, is working towards his doctorate. He actually got his uh, degree, his master's degree from the same school that I'm currently attending. So um, he's a very learned man. He's got a degree in, I think, his philosophy and maybe psychology. I mean, he's a very intelligent person. Has kind of a, a, a rough-and-tumble background, came from the streets of Chicago, literally grew up with, in gang-infested areas, and now he's kind of turned his life around, got out of, the, got out of the, uh, the, the ghetto, literally got out of the ghetto, and kind of became a true success story, both intellectually as well as physically. And I think him and Marvin Eastman could surprise people. I mean, I thought the, Mar- the uh, Terry Martin versus Chris Lieben fight from back in September of last year was a really fun little slugfest, and Eastman's not really known for, he's not known for like the, being the greatest fighter of all time or anything like that, but he still likes to stand and trade with people, and I think this is just going to be what people want to see, two giant black dudes beating the crap out of each other. This is Sokoju versus uh, Houston Alexander, if, it, if that fight had ever taken place. Now, I, w- I want to bring it back to a Byrate question real fast. Now, has UFC done any research into, uh, because I know a big thing with UFC is going to your local bar or going to a local Hooters and getting together with a large group of friends and watching the show. And oftentimes, many Hooters in my areas are often packed out with people watching the UFC shows. 
Now, do you know how that affects the overall pay-per-view buy? And is there anything UFC – I mean, first of all, it doesn't affect it at all. Um, I, I Probably not. I mean, UFC is a, is a group event. I know that when I watch the pay-per-views, I uh, get, to, get, uh, get together with Jay Bennett from the Figure Four Weekly uh, Board. Uh, we get together. We have a few guys over, four or five of us, watching the shows. And that's what fights are about. Fights are about guys getting together, eating a lot of pizza, watching grown men beat the crap out of each other. It's not, it's not the kind of thing where people order it and they sit alone in the room all by themselves watching it. It's not like pro wrestling where you're kind of going to be ashamed and you don't let your friends know you ordered the pay-per-view, so you watch it by yourself. I mean, MMA fights, UFC is, is a social gathering. And, yeah, there's something to the idea that if 40 people go to the bar and, and all watch it, only one person's actually ordering it. Although I think that they actually make increased revenue because I think that they probably charge the bar a uh, higher rights fee. But if there's 40 people at the bar, that's potentially 40 people that are interested in the sport not buying it. But on the flip side, that's still 40 people getting exposed to your sport. And you can probably be sure that 30 of them at minimum aren't that big into it. But you can kind of hook them. And then when the big fight does come, you get your Tito Ortiz, Chocolate L Part 2, or Quentin Jackson versus Chocolate L Part 2. Pretty much any time Chuck has a rematch with someone, seems to set a record. Uh, then they'll all kind of – you've set this goodwill. So I, I don't think that the bar thing really hurts the UFC. In fact, I think it probably helps them in the long run. It just increases their exposure to the general public. As far as that, that bar thing, um, UFC's making enough money on the pay-per-views. You know, they're making enough revenue, so they're not going to worry. It's, it's, and it's the whole idea of new eyes seeing the product. That's – you know, it, it's the same same type of uh, – of uh, outlook as far as giving out comp tickets to a show. It's the same exact thing. You're going to give people something for free, and then they're going to get hooked, and they're going to come back. And <clears throat> UFC's not freaking out about the bar stuff because they're, they're secure with their, with their manhood, per se, You know because they know they're going to make their money. They know they're going to have these people uh, checking out their product. So, I mean, it's really not that big of a, big of a deal, but... Uh, and plus, I, I would like to stress that I'm pretty sure the bars don't just pay 45 bucks and get the paper right. and just put it on all the TV they want. I mean, I know that um, there's a lot of times they've got to pay several hundred dollars for those fights because they're a bar and they have extra eyeballs watching it. So I'm sure that at the end of the day, like you said, the UFC's not hurting on revenue right now. I mean, they're pulling in $200 million a year, $100 million after they split it with the cable companies or whatever. I mean, this company's making a, li- a little bit of money right now. I think they're, I think they're pretty happy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, all right, well, we're going to skip right to the top of the card. Big Nog and Sylvia. What do you think, <sighs> Michael? Well, and Rodrigo... Actually, are you going to be able to stay awake during the fight? That's the question. Oh, I will. Oh, I, I always stay awake for Tim Sylvia fights because they fill me with anger and hatred and rage. And I, I mean, I was, I was, at, I was at Tim Sylvia's last fight live at UFC 77 from Cincinnati, Ohio. We took on Brandon Vera. I'm sitting in press row A, seat 15. I'm eight feet from the cage, and there were times I almost wanted to get up and jump and jump in the cage and just punch Tim Sylvia and go, "See, that's what a punch looks like. That's what you're supposed to do in a fight." But uh, I mean, it, look. It's an interesting fight, and it's really difficult because Rodrigo Nogueira is one of the most talented heavyweights the sport has ever seen. I mean, the man has solid hands and truly world-class jiu-jitsu. He can take a beating like, like nobody else can. Nobody in the sport can take a beating like Nogueira can. And he's just withstood punishment after punishment. And he's fought guys that are similar to Tim Sylvia 
And, it, you know, I mean, he beat Zulu, who's 400 pounds. He beat Bob Sapp, who's 350 pounds of pure muscle. He beat Sammy Schiltz, who's seven foot two and a world-class kickboxer. I mean, Noguera's been in there with everybody. You can imagine every style. I mean, you, you take the freaks. He's beaten truly world, like, world-class, well-rounded guys like Heath Herring and Sergey Harry Tonoff and Josh Barnett and Miracle Krokop. I mean, if there's a heavyweight out there who's not named Fyodor Emelianenko, Noguera's beat him. Tim Sylvia... He's beat some guys as well. I mean, Andre Arlovsky is no pushover. In fact, Andre Arlovsky is like a, a less talented but more athletic and bigger version of Noguera. You know, Arlovsky's got solid hands, a, a decent ground game, but he's a little more athletic than Noguera. And Big Tim Silva is able to use that reach of his and a jab. And it's, he fights ugly. He fights boring. I don't particularly enjoy him being on the cards. I think that he kind of embodies everything that can be wrong with fighters sometimes because he he truly has a win-first mentality, but there's no denying that Tim Sylvia wins. And you get, I give the man credit for that. He does what he has to do to win, and for him, that's the most important thing in the world. Uh, it's an interesting matchup here, but I've, um, I, I pretty much think it comes down to the fact that I think Tim Sylvia is going to be a little too tentative because he has been tentative in the past basically two years, 25 rounds of fights. He's 18 rounds of fights, I believe. He's, had, uh, just, he's been incredibly tentative. He just doesn't pull the trigger. And against someone like Noguera, the more opportunities you give him, the more openings you allow to present themselves, the greater chance that Noguera is going to capitalize on it. The man is a finisher. He can catch you with an armbar or a triangle or any kind of choke. He can catch you with a submission any time that it presents itself. And I think that ultimately that will happen. I think that Tim Sylvia's unwillingness to engage in fights will be his undoing. His tentative style, which he's used in the past to keep people at bay, to frustrate opponents, well, I think end up haunting Tim Sylvia in this one. And I like, I like Rodrigo Noguera by submission sometime in the second or third round. Now, you've said on, a, you've said on this show and then on your own radio show that you pick uh, Noguera to win the fight. But how much of a factor do you think it is? Because Noguera, especially in Pride and then even in his first fight in the UFC, he's been through some wars. And now he's, he's a little bit of age. And then the classic Bob Sapp fight that he did have, it's been a couple of years from now. It was a couple of years ago. So how, what Noguera are we going to see enter the cage? Is it going to be the pride Noguera that was very dominant, who could beat everyone in the world except for Fedor? Or do you think we're going to see maybe a little bit slower, maybe a guy who's not the Noguera that we're used to seeing? What, what do you think the odds of that are? I think that we're going to see a very good Noguera. I mean, his, everybody looks at the Herring fight back in July at UFC 73 stacked, in which they point, oh, look, Noguera didn't look like that great, but... The truth is, with the exception of literally one kick that landed, Noguera school herring almost as bad as he did in the first and second fights. And the fight right before that was against Josh Barnett, and Barnett's still an incredible fighter, and Noguera went toe-to-toe with Barnett and pulled out a victory over the babyface assassin. I think that Noguera's going to be in great shape. I think he's going to be a great fighter, and I'm not going to put too much credence into the idea that he's been beaten down, because one, I don't know if Tim Sylvia's going to beat him down, and two, if Tim Sylvia beats Rodrigo Noguera... I'm not going to make excuses for Noguera. I'm, I'm coming out saying Noguera's at his best right now, and if Tim Sylvia beats him, he beats the best Noguera there is. I haven't seen any signs that Noguera's truly a different fighter. This isn't quite like Mirko Krokop, where he shows up in the UFC, and he's noticeably different. I mean, Krokop was just not the same guy he was in Pride for whatever reason. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I think Noguera is going to be very good. And if he loses, it's not because he's – been beaten down over the years is because Tim Sylvia is just a really awkward, tough dude to fight, and he's a tough son of a bitch to beat. 
you brought up a, a very interesting name in Josh Barnett. Now, do you know if UFC having any interest in bringing in Josh Barnett? Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people in the UFC that would like to bring in Josh Barnett. My instinct would tell me that Joe Silva would have no problem with him. I know Dana White doesn't like Josh Barnett. There's a few people in the MMA community that Dana White just doesn't like to deal with. Josh Barnett, Frank Shamrock, Tito Ortiz is becoming persona non grata with the UFC. Um, I don't think I'm going to see Josh Barnett in the UFC anytime soon. I think Barnett has a long-term vision for what he wants to be, and I think that he understands that he works better in Japan than he does in America, where he can parlay his MMA success into the world of pro wrestling, which was kind of Josh's first love. I think that he he recognizes that and that ultimately he wants to be, you know, 40 years old doing kind of work shoot or just completely work pro wrestling in Japan. And when it comes to the UFC, he minimizes and diminishes some of his appeal and uh, notoriety over in the land of the rising sun. And for that reason, I think Josh Barnett's more apt to sign not necessarily just with a Japanese company, but with a company that will allow him to continue to explore Japanese interests. If you're with the UFC, you can't go over and do a hustle show or a New Japan Pro Wrestling event or anything of the sort. You're doing only the UFC. I think Josh Barnett prizes, rightfully so, his ability to kind of maneuver in this field and that field. Okay. And so uh, skipping forward to the next UFC card, um, on March 1st, 2008, we have UFC 82. Now, the thing that I'm worried about the most is uh, I think Dan Henderson has a really good chance of beating Anderson Silva. But uh, first of all, I would like you to break down that fight. And the thing that worries me about it is if Dan Henderson can't beat Anderson Silva, then I really can't think of a name who can. Yeah, um, but Dan Henderson absolutely can beat Anderson Silva. I mean, Silva's demolished people in the clinch. That is his bread and butter. This is his Muay Thai plum clinch is just otherworldly. But you're talking Dan freaking Henderson here. I mean, this guy is a true world-class Greco-Roman wrestler. If there's a middleweight on this planet, not named Matt Lindland, that can take apart Anderson Silva inside the clinch, it's Dan Henderson. Henderson is an athlete. He's got a phenomenal chin and a damn heavy right hand. Anderson Silva, of course, is just a freak. I mean, the guy's got the best striking currently. He's adapted his striking better to MMA than anybody ever has in the sport. He has true pinpoint accuracy, and real power with every strike he throws. He doesn't waste motion. But at the same time, I mean, he's got some weaknesses. He keeps his hands a little low. Uh, Rich Franklin caught him with a few right hands. And if there's one thing Dan Henderson has, it's a big, big right hand. Um, the X factor to me is just where's Anderson Silva's head at right now. He's been running through people, Rich Franklin twice, Nathan Marker, Travis Luter, Chris Lieben. I mean, and he's just beating people with such ease that it's, it's almost otherworldly, and I wonder if that starts taking the toll on him as far as does he start coasting? Does Anderson Silva start buying his own hype? Does he wake up every day thinking, I'm Anderson effing Silva. I can beat anybody <laughs> I want. Come on now. I don't need to train that hard. Did he lose some of that fire in his belly? And then on the flip side of Dan Henderson, he's 38, 39 years old. With the exception of Randy Couture, most people tend to break down when they get older. No offense to anybody out there listening who's kind of old, but you all, you old people just break down. That's what happens to the human body. You perform better at my age of 24 than you do at Dan Henderson's age of 38. Again, Randy Couture notwithstanding. So I'm wondering when Dan Henderson will get hit by Father Time. I mean, he's not a reckless guy. He's not a chocolate party guy or anything like that. But Dan Henderson's been in a number of wars and over in Japan, and He's fought, remember, Dan Henderson's fought, with the exception of a small run at the end there in Pride, he pretty much fought at 205 pounds, and 
for a dude that really doesn't have to cut that much make to, much weight to make 185, that's given up a lot of weight. And even though he had a lot of success, obviously beating Vandale Silva and Vitor Belfort, uh, contending well with Rogerio Nogueira, I mean, been in there with some of the top guys in the world at that weight. Uh, at the same time, that still that takes its toll on you, and that combined with his age makes me wonder when Dan Henderson will break down. I'm still not sure on who's going to win this fight. I got a month to watch all the videotape I can and try and see if I can find any glaring holes in each other's each fighter's game that matches up well. But I'm really looking forward to this. I should be at the show live. It's in Columbus. That's within five hours of me. I can make the drive out there. Hopefully, I'll be uh, sitting there uh, cage side. And this is a really awesome fight. This is a high-level middleweight competition. I mean, this is as good as you get. At 185 pounds, if you're not satisfied by Dan Henderson fighting Anderson Silva, I nothing will ever satisfy you. These guys are as good as it gets. Now, another uh, fight that's announced in that card is he's pairing against Chicago. Now, do you want to predict the winner now, or do you want to wait a little bit? Um, I, I'm going to wait a little bit. I've been focusing more on UFC 81 lately, but I mean, that's an, kind of an odd little fight. Check Congo's developing momentum. He just beats Mirko Krokop. He's got the look. I mean, Check Congo's got that look that every promoter drools over. Giant black man, ripped muscles, likes to just get out there and bang and beat the crap out of him. Looks like he can't be hurt by a single punch, and everything he throws looks like it's going to end his opponent's life. I mean, Czech Congo is absolutely, I would love to see Czech Congo versus Tim Sylvia. To me, that would just be a phenomenal fight. At the same time, he's hearing, this is a damn dangerous opponent for someone like Czech Congo. I mean, hearing he's one and two in the UFC, lost to Jake O'Brien, Rodrigo Noguera, won a sloppy fight against Brad Imes. Uh, he's got a decent takedown on him. He's more well-rounded than Czech Congo. But Harry, for his part, likes to stand and throw. I mean, Harry likes to bang with guys a little bit. And Congo's got a decent little sprawl. I think that if I had to pick a, a fight a winner right now, I would say Czech Congo wins by knockout because um, I think he's just a little more athletic and a little little stronger than Herring is. And that's saying something because he's Herring's a big dude. Herring's a real, true, legitimate 250 pounds of man right there. But I think Czech Congo's going to probably knock out Heath Herring in some sort of spectacular fashion. Okay, since you keep bringing up black men, uh, I want to go to another black man, a man in MMA. Um, when Kimbo Slice knocked out Tank Abbott, um, has Boss Rutten already giving uh, his seal of approval on Kimbo Slice? Do you ever see the mixed world being able to take Kimbo Slice seriously? Um, I, I think if Kimbo Slice kept winning fights today, he would take him seriously. I don't think he's going to. I think he's always going to be a sideshow attraction. And that's fine. He, he's doing what he's doing. The EXC, I think, understands his limitations. I think if they put him in there with like Antonio Silva, he would get mauled. And I, I would actually pay money to watch Antonio Silva fight Kimbo Slice because he would literally almost be mauled. I think, I think Antonio Silva might actually eat Kimbo Slice if they fought one another. But I think Kimbo <laughs> Slice is just, he's just becoming the next generation Tank Abbott, just kind of the mythical street fighter. And it, it, at the root of everything, there's something to that. The people just like the idea of a guy who just gets off the bar stool and just beats the crap out of everyone. And we, we think that guys that look tough and hit hard and can take a punch should be able to win sometimes. And it, it's, it's counterintuitive. It goes against what we've all, what everyone has learned about real fighting over the years, which obviously is the ground game's importance of well, being well-rounded, cross-training, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still, there is a place for Kimbo Slice in the sport, and I don't think he's going to exceed that place, and I think people will probably understand him what he is. I, I give credit to Kimbo for working people into giving him a big contract. I don't think that he draws any real money in for a while, but 
the man, he, like I said, he's the 2008 version of Tank Abbott. Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, speaking of working people, is there is there any update on the IFL status? Have they uh, secured a television bill for next year? Uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't know the IFL status if they sent me press releases, which they actually they do all the time. And I just kind of look at them, I glance at them, and I delete them because it's the IFL and nobody pays attention to the IFL. I don't even think the IFL pays attention attention to the IFL. I think that the the people inside that promotion, I think Boss Rutten is more concerned with what Kimbo Slice does against Tank Abbott than he is about the future of the IFL. The promotion is dead in the water. I will go on record right now. The IFL ain't making money. It's got a, a flawed concept and a lack of fighters. And I don't know if there's ever going to be a successful number two promotion in the United States. If there is, it ain't going to be the IFL. Now, why do you, why do you think that there will be a successful uh, number two promotion? Is it because uh, promoters don't know how to be successful in the world of mixed martial arts? They can't secure a good enough TV deal? Or what do you think? Um, I think it's part of it's a, it's it's just a difficult sport to do. I mean, the UFC only has a limited number of guys they can use to get over, and you know, there's so many things you need. You need to have a, a real television outlet that people get behind and watch. And you need to develop characters and stars. You need to develop guys that are at the same. They're both dual personalities and top flight talent, and that's tough to do. I mean, you got you take a guy like Tito Ortiz, you know, a real do a guy who can actually fight who has a, a charisma and a personality about him, that's really rare. And it's tough to develop stuff like that. Usually, you know, you get guys who've got a lot of charisma. you get like a, a thick Kimbo slice. All this charisma, people like him. He's got a, a look and everything. But he can't really fight all that well. He's not a great fighter. So people aren't going to get really behind him. And at the opposite end of the spectrum within elite extreme combat is Antonio Silva, one of the freakiest 265-pound fighters on the planet. Awesome speed, awesome technique, sort of real deal heavyweight. But he ain't really got a personality, and I don't think he'll ever become a true draw. And I think that there's so many things going against somebody to become a number two in the sport. And chief amongst them, probably the most important thing is that people watch ultimate fighting. They don't watch mixed martial arts. People want to watch ultimate fighters. It's like you don't. There's no number two football. League. I mean, there's the arena football league, but it's not. You can't even call that a number two league. It's no competition to the NFL. I mean, there's no competition in Major League Baseball or the NFL or hockey or basketball. I mean, those are the sports. It's a sport. You watch and the NFL, you want to watch football, you watch the NFL. People don't think of watching the NFL as watching a specific league. They, that's what football is. And if you want to watch mixed martial arts, you're going to watch the Ultimate Fighting Championship. They are positioning themselves intelligently, I believe, as the NFL of the fighting world. And so could there be a, a number two promotion? I think so. I mean, you can make money in the sport. Strike Force makes money doing just live events. I think that a promotion can make money. I don't think they, they can be the WCW to UFC's WWF anytime soon, though. Well, thank you for the wrestling analogy, because I was actually about to break out in a, a wrestling analogy, because I know you're also a wrestling fan. Um, now, I, was in a, I had a discussion the other day with my friend, and I was explaining to him how Ohio Valley works with WWE. Now, what are UFC? Uh, how is UFC cultivating upcoming talent other than the Ultimate Fighter show? Are they how aggressive are they in seeking out new talent? Um, you know, I don't. They don't really develop talent in the same way that pro wrestler pro wrestling does because you know it really is this a completely different beast. Uh, you know, they have the WEC. They have some lesser talent there, and I, I would suspect that if anybody in the WEC ever blew up and became a a real deal at one fifty five, seventy, or eighty. 85, they might bring him up, but at the same time, I don't know if that's the case. they got a guy named Carlos Condit, 
he's the uh, 170-pound champion of the WC. I have he's a legitimate top-10 talent at welterweight, but I don't think the UFC is in any hurry to bring him into the fold. Um, you know, top talent, it, it, MMA, it, it's like boxing. You know, fighters develop at a small local level, and it's up to Joe Silva and some of the other guys inside the UFC to spot talent and bring them along. I mean, they're signing guys. Like, they just signed a guy named Shane Carwin, who's a, a, a real dude, at, uh, 265 pounds, real heavyweight con- uh, challenger and all that. But it, it's tough, you know? I mean, you've got to kind of bring up guys and find top dudes who are really good somewhere and snatch them up before the other promotions get them. And you're going to see the UFC signing more guys. The UFC is going to have more burns than more busts and success in the near future because they're going to have to start taking risks. Because if they don't sign a guy, Elite XC will. Or a World Victory Road over in Japan will sign someone. Or K1. Or Bodog will rear its ugly head and waste a million dollars. Something like that. I mean, you're going to have to sign untested guys hoping that they develop into something truly world-class in the future. And, you know, some of that may be they can outbid EXC. I mean, you got someone like Jake Shields who's in the lead of Stream Combat. If the UFC wanted Jake Shields and Shields' contract came due, they could have got him. They have the money to offer. They could have signed Jake Shields. They could have had one of the top ten welterweights on the planet. They didn't need him yet. And I think if there's any real talent out there, if the UFC really wants the guy, they can get him. But as far as them actively cultivating talent, they don't really have a feeder system or anything like that. They use the Ultimate Fighter, although the appeal of that show is lessening over time because I think that more fighters are just saying, why on earth do I want to live in a house with a bunch of other sweaty half-naked men for a few months when I can just fight on one of your shows and get just as much exposure? I mean, when the Ultimate Fighter first started, that magical first season with Stephen Bonner and Forrest Griffin and Diego Sanchez and Josh Koscheck and Chris Lieben and all these real talented dudes, that was it. If you wanted to be in the UFC, that was like really was like your best chance. That was like kind of taking a shortcut. And nowadays, not so much. I mean, they're kind of scraping the bottom of the talent pool, and you're seeing some of these guys who get on the show, and they ain't all that good. And, I mean, I always joke that I'm one fight away from being the ultimate fighter, but, damn, when they're putting 32 men, the rumors that 32 men in the next season, and they'll all fight and to eliminate each other in the first week or something, you're getting to the point where if you've watched the UFC – you might be on the ultimate fighter someday. I mean, it's, they're really kind of stretching because there's just not that much talent out there right now. I have to agree with you on that one, Michael. Well, um, we're gonna we're gonna lighten up the show a little bit. Um, we're going to discuss uh, your boss on the F4WOnline.com uh, website. Um, have you had a chance to watch any of uh, Brian's in-ring work? Yeah, I've, I've actually watched some of uh, what Super Chico does. We can't, can't break kayfabe there. He's Super Chico when he's wrestling. I mean, I've seen Brian wrestle, yeah. Cool. Well, what do you think of him? Uh, a, I would say Brian's a fine little pro wrestler. I, I don't really uh, – I'm not a pro wrestler. I can't really judge guys too well. But um, Brian wrestles the kind of style I think a lot of fans appreciate. Uh, just kind of very simple, basic. He doesn't do anything stupid or crazy. If you want to watch a man get lit on fire – don't watch a Chico Alvarez tape. He ain't going to do it. But if you want to watch somebody kind of builds up his matches, has his 8- to 10-minute little match there, it's solid, it's good, it gets a high spot here and there. He works a safe, smart style where you're not going to get crazy or hurt. That's what a, a Chico Alvarez match is. And, you know, I, I, I haven't seen tons of Brian Alvarez matches. But I've probably seen about a dozen or so. And they're never bad, the hair match notwithstanding. And they're usually decently entertaining. I mean, I... I think that if most people watched a Brian Alvarez pro wrestling match, 
they would walk away saying, yeah, that was fine. I, I, I enjoyed myself. That was a good time. Yeah, I think I, I agree with him that he was born t- uh, 10 years too late. Um, yeah, exactly. Brian Alvarez wrestles like somebody out of the 1970s who does a moonsault every once in a while. And never hits it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's well, he's not, he's not going to hurt anyone, yeah. <laughs> so what, what, do you, what do you think of Brian as a boss? Uh, Brian Alvarez is, is any, a dream boss. He's he a great boss. Does he put any restrictions boss. on you at all? Or? No, I mean, no. I mean, we should pay me a lot more, but if, except for the millions of dollars I'm not getting paid every year, I, I can do whatever I want. I can write anything I want at any time. I can, uh, Brian's never put a restriction on me that I've ever been aware of. I mean, I write something, he publishes it. I record a show, he puts it up. He, he never tells me, Mike, you got to cut down on this. And, you know, my show's crossed the line and here and there and a few awful comedy skits have failed. But, I mean, look, anybody who's ever been to figure4online.com, they're aware that place is out of control and nuts. And my show fits them in. It has its own little corner of the empire, so to speak. And Brian just never has been had any restrictions on me. I'm sure if I ever cross the line, he'd let me know. But I am not really the kind of guy that would probably do that. I don't really want to go nuts or anything like that. But if every boss was like Chico Alvarez, I think people would be very happy. And I'm not just saying that because he's my boss or because I get along with him or anything like that. I mean, he really does give me free reign to do what I want to do, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. Five Star Radio would not be what it is, the entity that it is, without that, that creative freedom. Um, well, I wouldn't I, call I, it creative, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I I must say, Mike, um, the show has, has advanced you know, to a whole nother level since you dropped the Randy Orton skits. But well, that, Randy Orton me. appears every he, he, he does. He rears his ugly head every once in a while. But yeah, uh, okay, mostly I just got kind of lazy and didn't want to write stuff out in advance. And it's just easier for me to just, oh, this is the card, just kind of preview it. Just most of the time, I, most people, I don't know if everybody realizes, but most of my previews, I just kind of do off the top of my head. I don't take notes. I don't pull up websites. I just kind of know all this stuff. I don't know why I know it all, but Yep, it's, I've mostly just gotten lazy lately, and the show's quality has improved as I've gotten lazy, which tells me that I'm the problem with my show. The more work I do, the more of me I put into the program, the worse it gets. So Five Star Radio really needs less of me in order to be a success, which is a little bit disconcerting. Okay, after this show, I'm going to rip that little piece of audio there, and I'm going to send in a shout-out for Monday's Brian and Vinny show. <laughs> uh, the rest of the world that is not listening to Rubber Guard Radio right now needs to hear that. But <clears throat> that aside, so you're going to law school? Yes, sir. Cool. Um, what type of law? Uh, well, I'm literally studying all of it right now. Uh, you you kind of that's how it works. You you literally have to study every piece of law there is, and then after three years of ball breaking work, you take a giant test that you have to study for for six weeks, it's like two or three days, and takes like eight hours a day, which will quite, literally quiz me on everything I've ever learned about the law, including my name, which I've forgotten by now. I don't even know my own name. They give me a number. I am literally a number. You always talk about like how the Nazis were branded to the Jews with numbers, and that's where they were identified. Literally in law school, you don't have an eight. You write down a number on everything you do. So I'm just a number right now, and that's okay. I'm just their bitch, and one day they'll give me a degree, and I will go out in the world and probably ruin someone's life because I didn't pay attention enough in class or something like that. It's really a scary proposition, the idea that I could ever represent anyone in any way, shape, or form in a public forum. That's just ridiculous. And I'm frankly... 
I think I might sue the law school if they gave me a degree because that would clearly be a sign that they have no standards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to be nice and not say that, but you did, so that's okay. <clears throat> so <clears throat> how long have you been writing in general? Uh, let's see. Uh, my I first started writing for WrestlingObserver.com in August of 2002, so – uh, five and a half years now I've been doing all this, and I don't know how it's kept happening. I don't know why people keep publishing my stuff. I think it's even more absurd that somebody pays me even a modest sum to do this. But it does happen, and it's it's ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. I am living proof that America has no standards when it comes to the Internet. Wow. As far as um, new subscribers signing up to the to Figure Four Empire, um, I, I believe that there should be a, a button where uh, – when you're signing up, that you sh- you should be able to choose which option, like uh, what what got you there, like what show got you there. Um, I signed up because of the free Dr. Keith shows. There should be a button like that, <clears throat> so that you guys, uh, it might be an incentive or bonus type program. So then maybe we can get uh, the Adam and Mike show, you know, higher up on par, uh, because they are slipping. But I think that that this way that we'll we'll actually know. You know who's drawing, who's drawing the money, and who's not. What do you think? That, that is why this is precisely a horrible idea. I do not need to have quantifiable proof that I bring nothing to the table. Right now, I have a good deal going. I'm pulling the wool over Chico's eyes, and I do not need to have that exposed to the world. Well, get I don't know. I'll, I'll, uh, pick, I'll pick it up now. Box. So <laughs> it's out now, but that's yeah. okay. Alex, uh, you need to take over, brother. I think Alex oh. is sleeping. I do that a lot. Everybody who listens to me for any appreciable period of time ends up going to sleep. Let me tell you, I've got a mother, a father, a brother, a dog, a girlfriend, friends, aunts, uncles, cousins, listeners, readers. Anybody who spends time with me always goes right to sleep. My middle name is uh, Sambulant, so I, it's really an awful, it's an awful curse that I bear. But it's okay. It works for getting the ladies because you know I put them to sleep real easy, and then you know. I can have my way with their uh, television set, so it's, it's good fun. Actually, how, know, how's um, Brother Brian? We hold on just a sec, Alex. We haven't heard from Brother Brian in a while. How's he doing? What's up with him? Um, Brother Brian's been committed to a mental asylum. Uh, he's doing okay. He gets his Valium on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Xanax on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. But uh, no, Brother Brian. Yeah, I mean, I, I I tried to get some of the Valium, but he bit me, and that's why we put him back in the home. But uh, no, Brother Brian does all right. He's He's actually uh, working on something for Five Star Radio. I, he won't tell me what it is, which is generally a sign that it will be vulgar, disturbing, and disgusting, and probably violate several laws. But uh, he says he's working on it, and I don't know if it's ever going to come to fruition. But Brother Brian still exists in the world. He's still alive. I have not murdered him. I've tried a few times. I threw a puggle at him, and the puggle just licked his face, which I thought was disturbing. I thought the dog would eat his face. Bit the damn puggle. Just, he's, a, he's a licker, not a biter, and that's extends me, so I have no weapon to use against Brother Brian. But one day I will get him. I, I will end him. He is my sworn enemy, and I shall uh, I shall banish him from this earth. He he will rue the day that he ever was born. So when did you start? Uh, when when did you start getting professional wrestling? And how soon after that did you get into mixed martial arts? Or were you a mixed martial arts fan first, and then you got into pro wrestling? Or can you just give us a little bit of your history of uh, being a fan? 
Let's see. Uh, when I got into pro wrestling, mixed martial arts literally didn't exist except for as a concept in Brazil with the Gracies or something like that. Let's see. I was born in 1980, February 11th, 1983. That's right, everybody. It's coming up. I was born in 1983, and my first memory of life is probably from my Monday, 85, 86, and I was already watching pro wrestling. I've literally watched this as long as I can remember, and... You know, I've always been a pro wrestling fan, probably because I have feelings of inadequacy and need to expose myself to big, hairy, sweaty men. But uh, let's see, I became an MMA fan somewhere. I mean, I first became aware of it around UFC 4 or 5, but I, I watched it and I didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, I, I think the first fight I ever watched in full was the second Hoist Gracie Ken Shamrock fight, 33 and a half minute. It was a weird deal there, uh, boring kind of hump fest. And, which really wasn't the best exposure for a neophyte to the sport, but I slowly got into it more and more in the uh, early late 90s as I was entering high school, about 14 and 15, about uh, about 10 years ago, I guess I started getting into MMA. And then when I got exposed to Kazushi Sakuraba for the first time, that's really when I think that I went from being a pro wrestling fan that watched MMA to an MMA fan. I mean, it was Kazushi Sakuraba who I believe is the greatest bridge between professional fighting and professional wrestling. And that man has always had a, a special place in my heart. That's why I flew out to Los Angeles to watch him at the K-1 Dynamite show in the Los Angeles Coliseum. I just wanted to see Saku once in my life. I got to see him live. It was just an incredible experience just for that. And probably so was Sakuraba's rise and pride is really when I solidified myself. It's just, this is all I want in life. I mean, I was watching before. I, I saw a little bit of Frank Shamrock and such in his UFC run. But it's really Sakuraba's run in pride that's made me think this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Speaking of Kazushi Sakuraba, what was your favorite outfit that he ever walked into the ring in? Um, my favorite outfit, oh, what was my My favorite game that Sakuraba ever did, I think it was against Hoist Gracie, when it was like him and two other dudes all came down to the ring wearing masks, and nobody knew who, who, which one was Sakuraba. And when he took off the mask and the crowd went nuts, that was like an incredible moment because think about it. He's Kazushi Sakuraba. He's fighting Ho- the legendary Hoist Gracie, the unbeaten, ignoring the Harold Howard fight. Ho- I think it was Harold Howard. Uh, Hoist Gracie, the, the, the Gracie of all the Gracies, in a fight that ended up going 90 minutes. I mean, the biggest fight of Sakuraba's entire career, the fight that made him a legend, a hero to the Japanese people, and He's pulling off wacky little dances and gimmicks before the fight starts. I mean, what kind of a man does it? I mean, I had my one professional fight there, and I, I was just trying not to, you know, pee my pants as I'm walking out of the cage. Sakuraba's doing the uh, gimmicks. I mean, that that is Kazushi Sakuraba right there. That is why I've always been in awe of him. I mean, in that fight, I mean, it's like the 75-minute mark. Think about that for a second. There was a professional fight in which there was a 75-minute mark. That's insane. Here he's throwing double chops and stops and flying jumps and all this. It's like, are you crazy? You're in the biggest fight of all time, and you're still thinking, I need to entertain people. That, to me, is why Sakuraba is just incredible. Yes, his wins are awesome. He beat some of the greatest fighters of all time in their prime, and he gave up 30 or 40 pounds to these guys. But to me, it was Sakuraba's willingness and true desire to entertain that has always set him apart from everyone else. I mean, B.J. Penn, and right now B.J. Penn, I think, is the greatest talent the sport has at this moment. But he doesn't have, like, this urge to entertain people. He wants to go out there and beat them. He is a fighter. Sakuraba was an entertainer. And for that reason, I've always loved Kazushi Sakuraba. The one thing I'll remember, uh, other than the entire Sakuraba-Gracie fight, 
Because I remember when he when uh, the three the two guys and him came down the mass. I don't know if you remember this, but Antonio Noki handed uh, Hoist Gracie, and then he went to hand Sakuraba flowers, but he didn't know which one was the real Sakuraba. So all three masked men accepted the flowers and bowed to Antonio Noki. I don't remember. I don't remember if you remember that. No, oh yeah, I, I remember seeing that. And that, again, that's Sakuraba. He's goofing around. He wouldn't break his. He wouldn't break kayfabe to do it. He wouldn't break his character, even though except flowers from Antonio Inoki. Minutes before, he then engaged in a fight. And I mean, anyway, a fight. He was going to go in there with a dude that wants to punch him in the face, and he's goofing off. He's nuts. And he's actually a certified drunk and an alcoholic, and that just adds to Sakuraba's charm. Now, um, since you are such a large Sakuraba fan, have you seen any of his uh, professional wrestling matches? I have actually watched a little bit of uh, Saku's uh, work shoot stuff, and it's pretty good, pretty entertaining. He's not the level of a Kiyoshi Tamura, but Sakuraba knew what he was doing in there, and uh, I think if he had stuck with pro wrestling, he would have been a good pro wrestler, but not a great one. And he, I think he made the right choice because in MMA, he, he seemed he seemed to find his stride. I think you're going to find few and far between people, the uh, number of people out there are fewer, few and far between that believe Sakuraba didn't exactly have a good MMA career. Okay, well, and then, he was uh, a hell of a him. pro wrestler before. Oh, yeah. I mean, he knew what he was doing with his pro wrestling. And, and, again, that translates to how he acted in MMA. He understood what the deal was. He understood that people paid to be entertained. Tim Sylvia should learn this. Tim Sylvia wants to win. Sakurab understood. People are plunking down 50, 100, 200. I mean, some people are spending thousands of dollars for ringside seats. They want to be entertained. Not just to see who is the best. They want to be entertained at the same time as seeing who is the best. And Sakuraba understood that. And to me, that was the sign of respect that he had for his fans that he would do that. I mean, it truly shows a, a respectful fire. Tim Sylvia kind of disrespects his fans, if he has any, by being boring and methodical and, and plotting because people have a lot of options in life. I mean, there's, you can buy anything in the world. You can be entertained by anything. You watch 500 channels and on-demand HD this and porn on the internet, that, and all the kinds of stuff. So you've got to really earn somebody's money. And if somebody takes their money and gives it to you and says, entertain me, and you don't do it, and then you afterwards go, well, I'm just trying to win my fight. That's what I do. That's kind of disrespectful. And Kazushi Sakuraba understood your average person, this is their outlet in life. This is what they do for entertainment and to escape from the realities of their life. And he always put on a good show. Win, lose, or draw. I don't think he ever had a draw. Oh, yes, he did have a draw. Uh, Sakuraba always entertained people. I have to agree with you. Well, Mike, we're going to wrap things up. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show this week. Uh, it was definitely my pleasure and Alex's as well. Um, I'm going to give you the office the opportunity to plug whatever you need to plug. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Um, anybody listening to this, figure4online.com. You can uh, read my latest columns up there right now for free. This week I have a free edition of Five Star Radio, so if you're not a subscriber to the figure4online.com website, it's okay. You can stop by this week's Five Star Radio. It does a, a nice little hour in-depth preview of UFC 81. If you heard liked what you heard on this show, I go even more in-depth with my analysis of Frank Mir, Brock Lesnar, Tim Sylvia, Nogueira, and all the other fights, all the other button fights of the night. Um, it's a free show, so you can listen to that. And I've also become very involved in what is a, a great charity, the American Cancer Society's Relay for Life, right here in the uh, the Cal Illinois, where uh, I'm going to be relaying for life, walking with a group of other law students. We are raising money to fight cancer. Um, you can find that. You can find a link for that on uh, my latest column. If you're on the Figure Four board, my signature has this link. 
I believe the website is ACS, as in American Cancer Society, acsevents.org slash go to slash Mike Coughlin. You can donate any amount of money you want from $5 to $500. And if you donate $500, I will personally call you up on the phone and thank you. I will cut your lawn if you live in the Chicago area if you donate $500 fucking dollars. So, I mean, I'm really kind of getting behind this. I mean, it's, it's, it's cancer. You know, I mean, I'm raising money to fight cancer. This isn't anything controversial. There's no condoms involved. There's no blood for oil. There's no war in this. There's no abortion in that. It's just cancer. Everybody deals with cancer at one time or another in life. I mean, I lost three grandparents to cancer. I lost an uncle to cancer. My mother was a cancer survivor. I mean, and I'm not unique. There's lots of everybody. I mean, you find me somebody in this world that hasn't been touched in some way by cancer, and I'll find you a liar. So I'm really kind of getting behind that. And other than that, like I said, figure4online.com and wrestlingobserver.com. And that's all you need out of me. And if you need any more of me, there's something really wrong with you, and I would suggest you get psychological counseling. All right, Mike. I really appreciate you coming on, brother. Um, We will definitely have you on again. Um, You want to say goodbye, Alex? Oh, goodbye, Mr. (laughs) Gossett. All right, you guys. Thank you very much for having me on. And I want to apologize publicly for missing the last show. I got swamped and had some technical difficulties, but I was glad to do the show this week. Thank you guys very much for this opportunity. Not a problem. Thank you, Michael. We will definitely talk to you soon. Great. All right, Alex. Wow. That was a show. (laughs) That was definitely a show. That was a show. We survived. (laughs) We definitely survived. Okay, we have Jessica, not the wife, but Jessica behind me making fun of me. She's singing Gloria Gaynor. So, anything can happen here on Rebel Guard Radio. Um, MySpace.com backslash CM Saint. That's Alex's MySpace. Ours would be MySpace.com backslash Rebel Guard Radio. Uh, we're looking at uh, getting a Rebel Guard Radio website so we can archive everything. But we're running down to our last few seconds. Alex, I will be talking to you soon. And listeners, we will see you next week. Blog Talk Radio. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.